Recorded live. If I put it off too long, is is it too late? Uh, should I have done it sooner? And I keep getting some okie dokie from him as far as uh, so much stuff that had to get done and everything else. But I do want to get started on this video. I don't think I'll be able to do it in one take, and I don't know how long it'll be. The actual works of Josephus the Historian are available online everywhere. The copyright ran out on them like 2,000 years ago. And uh, so they're in the public domain and um, translated into English by, by a variety of different guys. And um, <clears throat> I'm working off of a um, chronology. This is from Josephus.org. But uh, this is a, a, a kind of a, a shortened chronology of the thing. I've read uh, the entire fall of Jerusalem in Josephus, which is several hundred pages of um, translated English, translated uh, maybe 100 years ago. So there's some linguistic um, difficulties you might run into with our current Xbox generation and a 2,000-word vocabularies when... Some of these people that wrote 100 years ago had, you know, 18,000 word vocabularies. Anyway, um, but uh, I, I've struggled with how to best communicate this uh, to you guys. Now, my understanding from the Lord at the time was that it wasn't uh, for the sake of history. It wasn't for the sake of just um, talking about uh, Josephus, but it was... The point of it was to emphasize the glorious, glorious destruction of Jerusalem, the the different flavors of delusion that were put on them, the amazing bloodthirstiness, heartlessness, cold-bloodedness, and how even the Romans stood back and marveled that this was God's hand against them. The, the amount of death uh, in a confined little space uh, that could have been avoided on every count, the, the, the amount of circumstances where you just have to see the hand of God in it, the number of warnings of, of people God sent in circumstances ahead of time, um, all of it conspiring together, the blood that ran in the streets um, so so thick on the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem that the, the Roman soldiers in their hobnailed uh, shoes could not navigate uphill in the streets of Jerusalem through the cobblestones for how slick they were with the blood of all the dead Jews who had killed each other. The, the, the depravity of the famine, people eating their babies, the, 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 the huge scale of how bad it was. I, I get that um, the Lord mostly wanted me to highlight the Red Dragons, the delusion that had landed on them. I talk about in the book I wrote called The Red Dragon. And <clears throat> that we're coming into a time like the world has never seen. And the destruction of Jerusalem has got to be one of the ugliest times the world has ever seen up to that point. Um, you could you could point to uh, 
concentration camps in World War II. You can point to starvation in the Ukraine by Stalin or, or the uh, wiping out millions of people by by Chairman Mao and the communist takeover in China, the Boxer Rebellion, and there are certainly horrible instances throughout history. But this one has a unique flavor on it because it really it really has all the hallmarks of God's judgment on the people. And um, not just uh, some tyrannical government wiping out people. Anyway, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this in, in one take. For one thing, we're supposed to have Bible study in 15, 20 minutes, and I'm just getting worked up to to want to get really chew, chew into this. So don't be surprised if uh, we break the video here and lighting changes, maybe shirt changes or whatever, but I'm committed to getting this done in the next day or so and getting this out to you. So uh, for reference, if you want to, go to josephus.org, and you can look up the, the entire works of Josephus there. The fall of Jerusalem, we're going to be talking through the war chronology and um, a bunch of stuff here that I printed off, several pages. And then some specific, um, I'm just going to give you the overview of it. People can argue with me. I left something out that was important or I, I plopped something in the wrong place or whatever. But I, I'm, I'm not coming at this as a, as a historian and an expert scholar. I just want to give you the overview of what happened, some of the specifics of how ugly it was, and uh, be obedient to what the Lord told me to inform you all about this. Lots of other videos that are coming too, but uh, I want to stop here for a minute and uh, we'll get started on this. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Doug again. Um, want to uh, start a little bit with some background information on uh, the siege of Jerusalem. I'm uh, talking from uh, Josephus, the Wars of the Jews. Um, available all over the place, but this is um, uh, kind of a timeline here. I want to kind of go down. I'm going to try not to touch the computer because I know the uh, microphone picks up everything there. But I've got a whole bunch of notes here. Okay, in uh, December of 19, uh, December of AD 69, not 1969. Uh, Vespasian, the new emperor, dispatches his son Titus from Alexandria to finish the war in Judea. Now, there have been a lot of uprisings. Uh, Jesus' ministry uh, uh, ended um, depending on, he was 33 years old when he was crucified. Uh, AD 1 is probably not correct because of changes in the calendar. So um, he was more likely born um, in uh, 83 or 84, something like that. So, um, anyway, after Pentecost uh, and uh, the Great Commission and the, the, the gospel spreading like crazy all over the place, uh, Saul killing the Christians, persecution in Jerusalem, and all this kind of stuff uh, happens for several years. Now, pre just previous to this, there's been a humongous amount of persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem, and they're pretty much all taken off. Um, so, 
uh, Jerusalem is Christianless. At this point, there's also been a ton of rebellion against the Romans. And these little groups of zealots that are uh, around fighting, trying to fight the Romans here and there, and mostly kind of uh, uh, guerrilla warfare, taking over um, supply chains and, and stuff like that. But uh, there's also been a lot of infighting among the Jews between these different factions. And uh, the Romans, they like everything peaceful and calm. You know, in Acts 19, there's a, a riot in uh, Ephesus because uh, the Temple of Diana, they're worried about uh, the Christians. Nobody's selling their idols as much as they used to because the Christians aren't buying it anymore. And uh, so there's a riot. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, uh, Artemis, same thing. Anyway. And they're like, the Romans are going to come and kill all of us. This is not an authorized uh, riot. <laughs> you know, we've we got to go home. And they put the whole thing down. That's Acts 19. Anyway, so uh, uh, there's been various encroachments against the Romans all over Judea. And uh, Titus marches to Caesarea with 2,000 Alexandrian troops and 3,000 Euphrates guards under the command of Tiberius and Alexander. Um, and Josephus, the historian who's a Jew, accompanies them. Uh, in early AD 70, Titus nears Jerusalem, and this is the first fighting. The 15th Legion and the 12th Legion join Titus. They encamp at Gibeah of Saul, about 3.5 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, the uh, uh, Okay, then... Other legions, the 5th Legion, assembles, joins Titus by way of Emmaus. Uh, they move to Mount Scopus, overlooking Jerusalem. The 10th Legion soon joins them, famous 10th Legion. They make a separate camp on the Mount of Olives, east of the city, across the Kidron Valley. Um, now, various uh, sort of charismatic leaders with their gangs have come into Jerusalem, have, have run to Jerusalem, saying, hey, Take us in, help us out. We've been fighting the Romans. Well, they haven't exactly been fighting the Romans. They've been stealing from other Jews, raiding wagon trains and camel trains or whatever. And uh, they um, are brigands. They're highwaymen. But they're held up as kind of uh, Roman uh, cessationist freedom fighters. So they're invited into Jerusalem, where each of these three different gangs kind of takes up residence in different parts of Jerusalem and then begin fighting with each other for territory. Um, so we, we have uh, the three different factions, John of Geshala, um, who uh, is, has gained control of the inner court of the temple and the upper, the upper uh, highest level there of the temple. And then Simon, son of Gioras, the popular leader from the countryside, has 10,000 Judeans uh, plus 5,000 Idumeans uh, in the middle part of the city. And John has 6,000 of his original men plus 2,400 of Eleazar's that have joined him uh, in, the upper, in, the, in, the, in the upper area. Uh, so John of Geshala controls the, uh, the inner court of the temple. Uh, Simon controls the upper city of the third wall, and uh, then we have another faction that begins to form in the lower city. Um, now, a big reason why the Romans are coming is just because 
uh, Jerusalem is in, in flames. I mean, the, these three gangs very quickly kill off legitimate government, kill off legitimate priests, select their own priests, uh, put on trial all of the eminent men of the city, steal their homes, steal their goods, and um, uh, they have got siege weapons, uh, projectile shooting weapons, small catapults and things that shoot like lots of arrows at once and spears and stuff that they've captured from the Romans that, that Jerusalem would normally have <coughs> some of those anyway, uh, being prepared for siege as they were. And the weapons that the guys at the bottom of the hill have are strong enough to hit the guys in the middle. And the ones from the guys in the middle can hit the guys at the bottom or the guys at the top, and the ones at the guys at the top can hit the next guys down. So everybody's basically shooting uphill at, at each other and uh, trying and sending out raiding parties looking for food and trying to burn out any assets the other guys might use. Now, a point of making this video is to show how crazy they were, how much God turned them over. And um, Jerusalem is a heavily fortified city, sits way up on a hill. On three sides, there are canyons that are really deep. I mean, this is a huge moat around the city, essentially, with a, with a, a, a river in it. The, the Hinnom Valley is so deep. Uh, Gehenna is at the bottom of the Hinnom Valley, and used to be a place of human sacrifice and stuff, and then uh, Josiah, I think, defiled it and said it would never be used that way again or whatever, and it became a city dump. And so in Jerusalem, there's 12 gates to the city. You would walk out the southern gate, which is the Dung Gate, and take all your trash and your chamber pots and just throw it off the cliff into, into the Hinnom Valley uh, where the trash dump was. When Jesus talks about Gehenna, where the worm never stops eating and the fires never stop burning, he's talking about the trash dump at the south side of the city that they all know and how nasty it is and how nobody wants to go down there because it's really, really gross. And any time you have a pile of trash, you're going to have a flame, you're going to have methane, you're going to have uh, decomposition and a lot of heat in that pile. It's just going to burn all the time. So uh, uh, Jesus is giving them an illusion, a, a, a parable showing them how hell is like the Hinnom Valley. Okay, just so it's not a distraction, that's not nail polish. I smashed my finger on, uh, I was picking up a big TV and a, a trundle bed popped up and smacked my finger. So it's going to be okay. Don't worry about me, but it's not nail polish, okay? Um, anyway, so these three factions uh, are gathering whatever momentum they can. Jerusalem, um, was hardly ever conquered, and it's always attacked from the north because it's got these real steep walls on three sides, and only from the north you, you have a sort of an approach that's not quite as steep. And um, there's really no way to build a ramp and, and uh, siege weapons or even, even catapult stuff from the south side. Um, even over... The, the 10th Legion set up camp on the Mount of Olives, and they could throw stuff across because they had weapons that would throw several stadia um, away. Hold on a minute. 
Okay, this fighting has been going on for a while within the city. Um, High-level, well-connected political people are getting killed off. Their families are getting murdered. Their stuff's getting grabbed. Now, Jerusalem uh, is, is a very has three different walls on the north side. It's, it's got one big wall on the east, west, and south, but that, that's no problem because you can't really approach it from that area. It's just a straight drop-off. Um, so they feel pretty confident, but over the years, uh, the only really good way to take Jerusalem was by a siege. So King David um, uh, dug down under the city and hit water, and so there's a spring under the city where people can come up and bring water every day. Uh, there's also a couple of other pools in the city where fresh water can be had. So if you're under siege, you want food and you want water, and then you can wait out any enemy. Um, the, the city had stores of grain to last 100 years. This is probably about 200,000 people live inside the walls, and the city had enough stored up food for them to resist a siege for 100 years. You got water, you got grain, lock the doors, lock us in, we're okay, we will wait you out. So no enemy really wanted to lay siege to Jerusalem because they knew that you, you can't take it that way, you can't starve them out. But these brigands, John and Simon and their factions, had burned all of the stores, all of the grain, to keep the other guys from getting it. Okay, So when the Romans roll in, with several legions surrounding the city, <clears throat> they, the, the, the factions in Jerusalem kind of come to an uneasy truce because the Romans are worse than each other is, but they're still raiding parties inside the city, and they're still killing off anybody, just indiscriminately murdering whoever they want um, and putting them on these kangaroo court trials and trying them for just being rich people and not sharing with the poor people and whatever crazy stuff. Um, uh, anyway, so here we are at the beginning of the AD 70. Uh, John controls the temple and the Kidron Valley uh, area, mostly, which has all been reduced to ashes. Josephus conveys to the rebels Titus's invitation of peace negotiations, but receives no response. Okay, Titus doesn't want to burn the city and kill everybody. He doesn't want to destroy the temple. He just wants to calm the whole thing down. Invites all the parties to come. Nobody wants to talk. Titus orders the leveling of the gardens, walls, plantations of the suburbs, flattening the space from Scopus almost to the city walls. Um, a Judean pretense at negotiations ended an ambush of several Roman soldiers. Titus and three legions moved camp to the northwest corner of Jerusalem, a quarter mile from the Tower of Saphinus. The 10th Legion remains on the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the 10th Legion is on the east side of the city. We've got uh, other legions surrounded, the 5th, the 12th, and the 15th on the west side of the city. And uh, now he's setting up um, setting up camp on the north side of the city. Um, uh, Titus circles the walls at one point with Josephus to look for an assault point and uh, is attacked by a raiding party, comes out of the walls to try and get them, but they escape, and they're okay. Um, Titus decides to assault um, opposite the tomb of John Hyrcanus 
in the northwest in order to capture the upper city and the Antonia Fortress. The legions are ordered to build earthworks. Okay, earthworks means they're going to start building big ramps up the, up the north side toward the wall where they can roll these big battering ramps that will smash into the walls and make crumble the wall down to get through the third wall, which is the outer wall. Um, I'm not good with graphics, but here, if you can see, okay, the, this is Jerusalem, the whole thing. The dark part, I'll use the finger that's not distracting. The dark part is where John has control. This is the Temple Mount up here. Now, this part over here is mostly under Simon's control. Here's the Mount of Olives. Here's the other legions. This is the north area down here. This is the Hinnom Valley down here. The Dungate is right in here. So the lower part of the city is controlled by Simon. The upper part is controlled by John. Here's the Temple Mount right in here. They're going to lay siege up here and come uh, because that's the closest to the second wall and to the upper city and uh, the temple. Okay. Um, after 15 days of battering, Jerusalem's outer third wall begins to break from the rams. Uh, the insurgents abandon the wall without much concern in favor of defending the other two walls. The Romans knock down the large part of the wall and the northern quarter of the city, just flatten the city, flatten the city. So there's nothing to hide in. They don't have to do urban warfare door to door from house to house if they just destroy everything. So they just, you know, without bulldozers, without, you know, trucks, they just knock everything down and haul it off. Now, they have built these huge uh, battering rams or whatever. Uh, at, uh, it gets to the point where wood is so scarce between having to feed the army and keep them warm and cook their food, plus all the big, uh, the, all the wood you need for the rams. For 10 miles from Jerusalem, there's not a tree standing. So the, the, the Mount of Olives, anybody that tells you <laughs> that this olive tree at the Mount of Olives was here when Jesus was here, no, in AD 70, they cut everything down. Uh, Titus moves the camp, his camp inside the third wall. Among the Judeans, John defends the Antonia Fortress in the north portico of the temple. Simon occupies the approach to the tomb of John Harkanus, the wall near the Herodian temple, uh, near the Herodian tower, Hippicus. They stage quick sorties against the Romans and still cherish hopes of salvation. Simon is revered. Um, the Judeans thought only of the injury which they could inflict, and death seemed to them a trivial matter if it involved the fall of one of the enemy. Already the, there's a lot of famine going on in the city, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, they haven't yet fully shut the city off to where there's no late-night black market stuff sneaking in and out. Uh, but here pretty soon, Titus is going to slam the door shut, and it'll get real bad. Um, Titus brings the battering ram against the central tower of the north portion of the second wall. Uh, the Judean deceiver, Castor, delays Titus with false peace negotiations, but a suspicious Josephus refuses to take part. Castor attacks one of the negotiators when the battering is resumed. Castor sets fire to the tower and escapes. Okay, so this tower with this big battering ram uh, banging on the wall uh, is set on fire. Jerusalem's wall is breached five days after the third wall. This is May 30th. 
Titus, with picked troops, recklessly enters the breach in the second wall into a crowded market district, asking the citizens to surrender peacefully so as to preserve the city. With the Judean militants attacked, many soldiers are wounded, and the entire invading force would probably have been annihilated had not Titus come to their relief, covering them as the soldiers are forced back through the wall. June 4th, after battling four more days, the Romans finally master the second wall and raise its northern portion. So the northern portion of the second wall now is completely destroyed, so there's no wall there. And this is a big wall, big, big, fat, thick wall. Um, at this point, Titus is continually, according to Josephus, trying to get them to just surrender and give up. Um, at this point, he decides to pause. The paymaster has come, and he owes money to all of his soldiers. So he decides to pay them in front of everybody. So he lines up all the legions between the third wall and the second wall in this big open area where people can see it. Uh, the people of the city can get on their wall, and they can see the whole legion as they line up to get paid. And so they go down the line one by one, paying the guys. It takes four days. Um, so after battling four more days, um, okay, wait, wait. Titus suspends the siege and uh, dramatically lines the soldiers up to receive their pay inside of the wall, a process that takes four days, impressing upon the rebels the number and arms of the Romans. The rebels do not surrender. He splits his forces into four embankments. Legion 4 and 12 build earthworks against the Antonia Fortress so as to attack the temple. Legions 5 and 15 build works in the northern part of the city across from John Harkanus' monument in order to take the upper city. Rebels fire on them with hundreds of artillery pieces. Okay, so uh, they have artillery, not cannons and stuff, but they have rock-throwing, spear-throwing, dart-throwing things that they're, they're shooting and trying to stop the earthworks and to stop the building of these uh, siege weapons. Uh, Titus, seeking to avoid the destruction of the city, delegates Josephus to speak to the rebels in their native language and persuade them to surrender. Josephus circles the walls as he speaks to the rebels. He implores them to spare themselves, the people, the country, and the temple. The Romans, he says, have done more to protect the temple than they have. At this point, you've got brigands in the temple, killing people in the temple, blood in the temple. Some of the priests are still doing the sacrifices, but the temple's been defiled. It is, ira it is rational to give in to superior arms. The Romans are, are masters of the world because clearly the will of deity was with them. This is Josephus' speech. The Bible demonstrates that when the deity supports the Jews, success is obtained without warfare, while if war is waged against superior powers, the result is always defeat and destruction for the Jews. Anyway, he goes on. He also says that miracles, moreover, greeted the Romans. The Pool of Siloam, which had been dried up, this is between the third wall and the second wall, now filled with water at Titus' approach. So now Titus has water in that area between the third wall and the second wall that wasn't there before. In the end, Josephus makes a personal appeal. I have a mother, a wife, and not in noble family, and an ancient and illustrious house involved in these perils. And maybe you think it is on their account that my advice is offered. Slay them. Take my blood as the price of your own salvation. I, too, am prepared to die if my death will lead to your learning wisdom. They don't listen to him. 
Although Josephus, with his tears, thus loudly appealed to them, the insurgents do not yield. <clears throat> However, non-combatants are inspired to desert. They sell their possessions for gold, then swallow the gold coins to hide them as they escape to the Romans. Okay, this is this whole thing, the Romans, people listening, other soldiers that are there, Josephus, all of them are like, God is against this city. God is against this city. Man, oh man. Okay, so the Romans offer, for any of the Jews that want to leave, to just leave. You're not going to be slaves. We're not going to hurt you. Just go. Just come on out and go. Okay, but John and Simon, the brigands that have taken over the city, are considering them all deserters and are going to kill anybody who tries to leave. So anytime somebody even talks about it or a group starts gathering near the door trying to get out, they just kill them all. Now, the rich people, uh, if you saw Schindler's List, there's an example there where people are going to the prison camps, all of their paintings, all of their artwork, all their furniture, everything is being taken from them. They, they want to be able to start a life or bribe a bribe a guard or something. So they're swallowing diamonds and gold rings and whatever, thinking, you know, I'll just get it out the other end and clean it up and we'll, we'll be able to start with something wherever we're going. And um, so the same thing is happening in AD 70. The rich people are selling whatever they can uh, for gold, which, you know, you're in a famine situation. The gold's not worth much, but they're, they're uh, piecing together whatever they can and swallowing these gold coins um, and uh, escaping the city. Uh, the deserters give the Romans pitiful reports of increasing famine in the city and attacks by insurgents performing house-to-house searches for food, beating and torturing those within. The wealthy are robbed and murdered by the forces of John and Simon. Okay, uh, to narrate their enormities in detail, this is Josephus, to narrate their enormities in detail is not possible. Is, but, to put it briefly, no other city ever endured such miseries, nor since the world began has there been a generation more prolific in crime. Okay, so here's the problem. The Jews are escaping the city. They're all emaciated and starving. The Romans are under orders to treat them nicely and just get them along their way and get them out of the way. So they come out of the city all emaciated and thin. I I can't very well. (laughs) That's an imitation I can't do. (laughs) They're they're all emaciated. And uh, the Romans are like, hey, come on. We got plenty of food. Have something to eat. And they've been starved so long that their stomachs are shrunk up. They eat and they eat and they eat and they explode. Literally, like, burst open. Um, when we moved into Auschwitz, and the doctors knew, don't give, give them a little sip of water, don't feed them. We've got to medically help these people. They will die if you overfeed them, and they will not want to stop eating. So the Jews... It, with good intentions, the Romans are feeding them, and they're bursting open, and gold comes tumbling out. <laughs> okay, besides the Roman legions, you've got all these mercenaries that they've hired too. 
And even though they're under orders, uh, the word gets out, the Jews are full of gold. <laughs> so when the Jews start coming out of the city, they just cut them open to see who's got gold in them because they're all like piñatas. And uh, so what, what seems like a good-natured uh, effort to help them escape turns into a slaughter to, uh, to see who's got gold in them. <coughs> as construction of the embankments proceeds, the Romans capture escapees from the city as many as 500 a day. Prisoners are tortured, killed, and crucified before the walls to intimidate the populace. Titus is saddened by the necessity of the crucifixions. So great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. 500 a day are escaping from the city, and they're crucifying. Okay. And uh, all so many all around the city that it has the opposite effect. <laughs> the cruelty of the Romans has a reverse effect of discouraging desertion. Titus continues to exert the <coughs> excuse me, exhort the rebels to surrender peacefully and save the city. <coughs> the Judeans reply by expressing negative opinions of Titus. That's probably fairly tame. And the emperor, and declare they prefer death to slavery, will fight the Romans with their last breath. <coughs> and that the world was a better temple for the deity than this one. A radical concept too shocking for Josephus to contemplate that the temple might not be necessary. The result of the conflict, they say, in any case, is up to the divine will, not to them. June 16th, on the 17th day of the building of the works, John undermines the Antonia earthworks built by the 5th Legion and <coughs> sets fire to the supporting timbers, causing the tunnels to collapse and the whole works to burn. So there's an earthen ramp with this big, uh, um, you know, uh, wall-smashing thing there. John digs under it, undermines the supports under the whole thing, sets fire to the timbers that are holding this thing up, and then vacates the tunnels. The whole thing burns and collapses down into the tunnels that they've created, which then themselves are clogged, so the tunnels aren't really accessible to get to the other side either. So this really frustrates the Romans. They're dispirited at the loss of so much hard work and also the lack of timber to rebuild. For all the trees around the city have been cut down for a distance of 90 stadia. That's 10 miles, 16 kilometers. Titus holds a difficult consultation with his officers, unable to rebuild the works, but unwilling to wait indefinitely. Titus decides to blockade the city completely to prevent food supplies entering. At the same time, he will rebuild the embankments at one position only against Antonia. <clears throat> Enthusiastic troops build an earthen wall or a trench completely around the city in three days. Okay, this is a huge undertaking. This is a, a pretty substantial engineering feat. That in three days, they've built a, a wall around the whole city sufficient to block any coming and going. And then where they do have doors in the wall, they're guarding those as well. All hope of escape being cut off, the famine within the city intensifies, 
burials are neglected, bodies pile up, insurgents continue the trials of prominent persons, execute eminent men, imprison Josephus' his father. Um, then Josephus is traveling around the wall, exhorting them, and gets hit with a rock. They think he's dead. He's knocked unconscious, but he's okay. Here's a picture of uh, what Rittmeyer Archaeological Design thinks the upper city would have looked like. Um, this is the Antonia Fortress right here. And uh, the white building in the middle is the temple itself. Uh, the inner court and all of these uh, buildings nearby being um, treasury and priestly things and whatever. And Solomon's porch being this big thing over here, uh, which was a covered open area where people could gather and stuff. But this is the Antonia Fortress right here, uh, which was um, very imposing and defended that corner of the wall and also shared a wall with um, the, uh, the temple itself. Um, Syrian troops discovered deserters have swallowed gold coins. The rumor spreads that all deserters are filled with gold. Arab and Syrians cut open all who escaped the city. In one night, no less than 2,000 were ripped open. Uh, Josephus interprets this as another example of divine retribution. Um, John, the brigand, melts down the temple vessels for gold and distributes sacred wine and oil to his men. He reasons they can employ divine things on behalf of the divinity. So he believes, though he's a brigand, that he's defending the temple against the Romans, even though they wouldn't be there if not for him doing what he's doing. But he's basically sacking the temple for gold. Um, deserter Manaeus ben Lazarus is assigned by the Romans to watch a city gate. He counts 115,880 bodies carried through the gate during the siege in the period from Xanthicus 14 to Panamus 1. That's May 1 to July 20. Okay, so in less than two months, 115,800 bodies, 880 bodies go through there. Report, reports from within the city give the total dead among the lower classes at 600,000. Okay, part of the problem is that Though the city normally holds about 200,000, at Passover, which was earlier, um, the Romans, you got almost a million people that show up for Passover, to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, all these pilgrims from all over the world. And they let them in. And John and Simon let them in because they want to, you know, sack some more people who are coming with camels and sacrifices and food and everything. So the Romans let them in and they won't let them out. So the city swells from a population of a couple hundred thousand to over a million. And they're all crammed in there um, with not enough houses, not enough space, and two private armies, uh, or three, slaying everybody and taking whatever they want, and they seem pretty bad. Reports from within the city give the total debt among the lower classes at 600,000 people. This is July 20th. Uh, the Antonia earthworks are completed in 21 days. They are heavily guarded, as all timber has been used within 10 miles of the city. John makes a strong attempt to destroy the construction, but fails. The Romans, under heavy fire, bring siege engines against the Antonia fortress. Armored engineers undermine the foundation, suffering the pounding of the battery rams. A portion of the wall collapses. It has been weakened by the tunnel previously dug by John's men to attack the earlier works. 
So, see, John dug a tunnel under there to undermine the siege works, but it also undermined the wall. The Romans are dismayed to discover John has built another wall inside the wall that they just knocked down. Titus exhorts the dispirited troops, saying, The deity is on their side. It is more glorious to die in battle than of disease. Fallen warriors immediately take their place among the stars rather than reside in the underworld. The new wall will be easily overthrown. Once Antonia is taken, the city is theirs, which is true. Inspired by Titus, Sabinus of Syria leads an impressive attack to scale the wall, but at the summit trips and is killed. Two dozen soldiers. See, this is where things really turn, because um, the, 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 all of the siege weapons and everything aren't really getting them too far. Two dozen soldiers, acting on their own initiative, lead a daring night attack and seize the Antonia Fortress. They climb up over the wall, scare off the Jews, and take the Antonia Fortress. The rebels fall back into the temple grounds, battle fiercely, and prevent further Roman advances. On August the 5th, that's the 17th day of the month of Tammuz, the daily sacrifices in the temple are halted. Now, that's the exact same day under Solomon that the temple sacrifices were halted. <clears throat> Josephus, now we enter the three weeks of awe between the 17th of Tammuz and the, the 9th of Ab. Josephus argues with John to restore the sacrifices. He delivers a message from Titus to the rebels. Within hearing of all the populace, John may leave the temple so that it may no longer be polluted and the sacrifices may be restored. John enters into a heated argument with Josephus. John stating the city was God's and so could not be captured. Josephus replying that John had driven the divine presence away by stopping the sacrifices. John is unmoved, but great numbers of upper-class citizens, especially priests, desert at this point to the Romans. Now, this is a good point I want uh, for me to interject. Um, some other stuff out of Josephus. Um, where God warned them ahead of time about all this stuff. And the vast majority of people ignored it completely, as the vast majority of people do typically ignore God. Um, uh, I'm reading here, Josephus is talking about before all of this happened. Okay, here's, here's an excerpt of uh, during the siege. Um, this is a okay. Uh, this is well, this is let me let me back up. This is before. Um, uh, God had made denunciations about them against them earlier. They did not plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated with either eyes to see, without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. Thus there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. That was Haley's comet. Thus also before the Jews' rebellion and before these commotions which preceded the war, when the people were come in great crowds to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the eighth day of the month of Nisan, at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone around the altar and the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, which lasted for half an hour. This light seemed to be a good sign to the unskillful, but was so interpreted by the sacred scribes as to portend those events that followed immediately upon it. 
At the same festival also, a heifer, as she was led by the high priest to be sacrificed, brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. Okay, a cow coming forward to be sacrificed gives birth to a lamb in the temple. Wow, okay, for real. Moreover, the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, which was of brass and vastly heavy, and had been with difficulty shut by 20 men and rested upon a basis armed with iron and had bolts fastened very deep into the firm floor, which was there made of one entire stone, was seen to be opened of its own accord about the sixth hour of the night. Now those that kept watching the temple came here upon running to the captain of the temple and told him of it, who then came up thither and not without much great difficulty was able to shut the gate again. This also appeared to the vulgar to be a very happy prodigy, as if God did thereby open them the gate of happiness. Oh, look, God has opened the gate of happiness. But the men of learning understood it, that the security of their holy house was dissolved of its own accord, and that the gate was opened for the advantage of their enemies. So these publicly declared that the signal foreshadowed the desolation that was coming upon them. The wise said, this is all bad, guys. God has thrown open the doors. We are defenseless here. Besides these, a few days after that feast, on the 1 and 20th day of the month of Iyar, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed of it, it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, okay, this is on the 20th day of the month of Iyar, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as was their custom, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that, in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove thence. Let us remove hence. But what is still more terrible... Okay, so, the priests are in the temple hearing a great multitude of voices saying, let's go, let's get out of here, we're, we're out of here. <clears throat> okay, despite all of that, now I want to paint this picture of this guy and how God might use you to be a guy like this. Maybe, maybe I'm a guy like this, I don't know. But this is serious, this is a serious guy. And he was more scary. Okay, Josephus says, but what is still more terrible, there was one Jesus, the son of Ananus, a plebeian and a husbandman, who four years before the war began, and at a time when the city was in very great peace and prosperity, came to that feast whereon is our custom for everyone to make tabernacles to God in the temple. Okay, the Feast of Tabernacles. He began on a sudden to cry aloud, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, a voice against this whole people. 
This was his cry as he went about by day and by night in all the lanes of the city. However, certain of the most eminent among the populace had great indignation at this dire cry of his, and took up the man and gave him a great number of severe stripes. Yet did not he say either anything for himself or anything peculiar to those that chastise him, but still went on with the same words which he cried before. Hereupon our rulers, supposing as the case proved to be that this was a sort of divine fury in the man, brought him to the Roman procurator, where he was whipped until his bones were laid bare. Yet he did not make any supplication for himself, nor shed any tears. But turning his voice to the most lamentable tone possible, at every stroke of the whip his answer was, Woe, woe to Jerusalem! in the most lamentable tone possible. And when Albinus, for he was then our procurator, asked him who he was and whence he came and why he uttered such words, he made no manner of reply to what he said, but still did not leave off his melancholy ditty till Albinus took him to be a madman and dismissed him. I'm not telling you who I am. I'm not telling you why I do this. I'm not telling you what God told me. Woe. Woe to Jerusalem. That's it. That's all I'm saying. A voice is raised against this house and this people. Nor did he give ill words to any of those that beat him every day, nor good words to those that gave him food. This was his reply to all men. Woe, woe to Jerusalem. And indeed, no other than a melancholy presage of what was to come. This cry of his was the loudest at the festivals, and he continued this ditty for seven years and five months, without growing hoarse or being tired therewith, until the very time that he saw his presage in earnest fulfilled in our siege. Okay? So for seven years and five months he's doing this. Woe, woe to Jerusalem, a voice from the east and whatever, crying against this people in this house. <clears throat> won't say anything else. Going around every day, all day, all the time, getting weep, won't cry, doesn't tell his name, doesn't say anything but that. Seven years and five months. Until it's real evident that he was right all along. The city's under siege. He's still there. <clears throat> he did it until the very time that, we, that he saw his presage in earnest, his prediction, in earnest fulfilled in our siege. When it ceased, for he was going around upon the wall, he cried out with his utmost force, Woe, woe to the city again, and to the people, and to the holy house. And just as he added at the last, Woe, woe to myself also. There came a stone out of one of the siege engines, and smote him, and killed him immediately. That is a prophet of God that means it all the way. Seven years, didn't say anything else, stayed in a city that was destined for destruction. I don't know what God did to that guy, but that's something. And then your situation is pretty hopeless. Anyway, 
they they tackle Antonia. They get through Antonia. Now they're up on the temple uh, proper and uh, skirmishing out into the big open area of the temple. The rebels, out of desperation, assault the Tenth Legion on the Mount of Olives, but are repulsed after a sharp battle. Fairly crazy. Just want to see something happen. Um, the legions begin to build embankments to approach the first wall, one at the northwest corner of the inner temple, one at the northern hall between the two gates, one opposite the west portico of the outer court, and one opposite the north portico. The work is exhausting, timber having to be carried from a great distance. Uh, Romans set fire to the adjoining portico uh, between Antonia and uh, the temple, and uh, the rebels cut away the rest of it. Antonia becomes completely disconnected from the temple. This causes the temple to become foursquare, fulfilling an oracle from years before predicting the city's fall. But when the temple became foursquare, the city would fall. <clears throat> and by disconnecting the Antonia fortress from it, it becomes a square again. <clears throat> or a rectangle, but anyway. Um, victims of the famine are dying in countless numbers. Hungry rebels like mad dogs stagger from house to house searching for food. Um, shoe leather and grass is not on. Famine reaches its ultimate depth. The tale of Mary, daughter of Eleazar, shocks the rebels and Romans alike. This is an upper-class dignitary woman uh, who is so fed up she feels like all day she searches for a morsel of food, and as soon as she does, somebody breaks into her house and demands it of her. So why bother anymore? So she um, kills her baby, cuts it in half, lengthwise, grills half of it, and eats it. Uh, the rebels come running at the smell of the fire and cooking meat and say, uh, uh, what have you eaten, and did you save some for us, and where is it? She says, for fear of being regarded as a, 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 Josephus says, for fear of being regarded as a fabricator, I would get, gladly have omitted this tragedy had I not innumerable witnesses among my contemporaries. Um, let me read you real quick this uh, um, story here. I didn't print it off. I should have. Okay, there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond the Jordan. Her name was Mary. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. She was eminent for her family and her wealth and had fled to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged therein at this time. Um, the, others, the other effects of this woman had already been seized upon, such I mean as she had brought with her out of Perea and removed to the city. So all her stuff's gone. What she had treasured up beside, as also what food she had contrived to, say, to save, had also been carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into her house for that purpose. This put the poor woman into a very great passion, and by the frequent reproaches and imprecations, uh, she 
cast at these rapacious villains, she had provoked them to anger against her. But none of them, either out of the indignation she had raised against herself or out of commiseration for her case, would take away her life. So she's screaming and yelling, saying nasty things to these guys that are taking all her stuff, but none of them want to kill her. Um, if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself, and it was now become impossible for her anyway to find any more food. While the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessity she was in. She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O oh, thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. The famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets, and a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son, and then roasted him, and ate the one half of him, and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the seditious came in presently, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them, and withal uncovered what was left of her son. <clears throat> Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind, and stood astonished at the sight. When she said to them, This is mine own son, and what hath been done was mine own doing. Come, eat of this food, for I have eaten of it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than a mother, but if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this my sacrifice, as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. <laughs> okay, I know that's kind of old English and everything, but basically she's saying, if you're such a, if you, if you think that you are more tender and more compassionate than the mother of the baby, and you don't like my meal, then leave it to me. After which, these men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this, and with some difficulty, they left the rest of that meat to the mother upon which the whole city was full of this horrid action immediately. Everybody heard about this right away. And while everybody laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled, as if this unheard-of action had been done by themselves. It's not like nobody else was thinking it. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die, and those already dead were esteemed happy, because they had not lived long enough either to hear or to see such miseries. This sad instance was quickly told to the Romans, some of whom could not believe it, and others pitied the distress which the Jews were under. But there were many of them who were hereby induced to a more bitter hatred than ordinary because against our nation. But for Caesar, Titus, he excused himself before God as to this matter, 
and said that he had proposed peace and liberty to the Jews, as well as an oblivion of all their former insolent practices, but that they, instead of concord, had chosen sedition. Instead of peace, war, and before satiety and abundance, they chose a famine. That they had begun with their own hands to burn down that temple, which we have preserved hitherto, and that therefore they deserved to eat such food as this. This is, in the timeline, this is right after the temple burn. Let me get back to where we are here. They've gotten into the Antonia uh, Tower. Um, They're fighting all the time on the Temple Mount. Uh, They've built uh, walls. They've built uh, siege ramps against the other interior walls. See, now they're on the inside of Jerusalem. They're inside the two walls just fighting over the last wall so they don't have to deal with the Hinnom Valley and um, everything because they're inside the city now. Uh, So they're taking the siege works and the ramps and everything they built on the outside, moving them inside to take over the the, the walls inside. Two legions complete their earthworks. Titus orders rams opposite the western wall of the outer temple court. Siege engines and mines having little effect. Romans scale the porticos with ladders but suffer heavy losses. Titus orders the gates set on fire. The silver melts and the fire enters the woodwork and spreads to the porticos. After a day, Titus orders the fire extinguished and a road built to the gates for the ascent of the legions. The fires continue to burn. Two important officers of Simon's desert to the Romans. Um... Here's a picture of the temple in Jerusalem, as it was, covered in gold, big white pillars out front, shining on the top of the hill like a flame. The inner courts of the temple, it says, this is uh, described in War 5.5.2 to 6, um, is the reference inside uh, the Wars of Jerusalem. The eastern gate, seen at the bottom of the picture, leads to the court of the women, permitted uh, to all sufficiently pure Jews. The Nicanor gate, near the center, leads into the court of the male Israelites uh, and the court of the priests, where where the sacrificial altar was situated and tended. Beyond is the holy house itself, the exterior of the building wanting nothing that could astound either eye or mind were being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that people straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. So, um, they are the day before the ninth of Av, August 28th, Titus holds a council to decide what to do at the temple. This council consists of his six chief staff officers, the commanders of legions 5, uh, 10, and 15, the prefect of the two Alexandrian regions, and the procurator of Judea. The tribunes and procurators also are called in. Some commanders recommend it be destroyed, others that it be preserved, unless the rebels use it as a fortress. Titus states he would preserve the temple at all costs, even if used as a fortress, because its beauty should be preserved as a possession of Rome. 
So Titus has every intention of not burning down or sacking the temple. The Judeans attack on August 29th, which is the, the 9th of Av, the 10th of Av. The Judeans attack the guards in the outer court through the east gate, are forced back to the inner court after a three-hour battle. Titus withdraws to Antonia, resolving to attack the next day, but the rebels again attack and are routed back to the sanctuary. At that moment, one of the soldiers, without orders, but moved by some supernatural impulse, quote-unquote, snatches a burning timber from a fire and throws it through a golden door on the north side of the chambers surrounding the sanctuary. Okay? That would be these over here. Okay, they were fighting in the inner court in here, and they're pushed back through the doors. They throw a uh, fire in there. Titus is given the news. He attempts to order the fire extinguished, but it either is either not heard or is ignored. Battle rages around the altar. Titus enters the sanctuary to view its contents. The interior is not yet on fire. And seeing that the building can still be saved, Titus makes a second attempt to have the fire put out. But when he exits the building, one who had entered with him thrusts the firebrand through the hinges of the gate. The interior of the sanctuary is now on fire. Thus, against Caesar's wishes, was the temple set on fire, quote-unquote. Josephus provides an eyewitness account of the destruction, the fire, and the noise. Quote, you would indeed have thought that the temple hill was boiling over from its base, being everywhere one mass of flame, yet the stream of blood was more copious than the flames. He observes that this was on the very day and month that the first temple had been burnt by the Babylonians. The Romans burnt all the buildings in the temple complex, destroying the treasure chambers of the wealthy. It was like safe deposit box for all the rich people. Uh, as far as banks go, they would just leave it with the priests, and the priests had a furniture kind of uh, whatever built to uh, protect the wealth of each individual rich person or whatever. Um, as safe a place as you can imagine. It was a huge fortress. The populace, especially poor women and children, are persuaded by a false prophet to go up to the temple court to receive deliverance from the deity. A crowd of about 6,000 climbs onto the porticos, which are set on fire by the Romans, all die. There were plenty of false prophets at the time, says Josephus, yet people had not paid attention to the genuine signs of destruction, a star resembling a, store, a sword standing over the city, a comet, a brilliant light around the altar, a vision of armed battalions in the sky, and voices in the temple, along with the prophecies of a peasant crying, Woe to Jerusalem! It is impossible for men to escape their fate, even though they foresee it, Josephus says. Romans carry standards into the sanctuary at the east gate and sacrifice to them. So much gold has been taken from the temple that the price of gold throughout Syria is cut in half. Okay, throughout Syria. Okay, we're in Judea. The nation north of Judea, the price of gold drops in half because so much gold is in circulation from what they took from the temple. The priests are executed by Titus. The rebels flee into the city and ask for counsel with Titus. Titus lectures them and offers to spare their lives if they surrender. The rebels reply they cannot accept his offer, having sworn never to do so. Instead, they ask to be freed into the desert. An angry Titus ends the talks, orders troops to burn and sack the city. So chance after chance after chance to surrender and spare their lives. Okay, yeah, you'll be a slave, but you'll live. No, no, sorry. We, we swore we wouldn't quit fighting. Well, why do you ask for talks then? The rebels gather all their plunder and flee to the upper city. 
The entire lower city is burned to the pool of Siloam. Joseph still attempts to talk the rebels into surrendering, or at least to give up the holy relics that they took from the temple. Rebel leaders hide in underground passages under Jerusalem. They believe they'll, they'll be saved and, like, the Romans will just go away. Titus orders new earthworks to attack the upper city. Four legions work on the west side of the city opposite the royal palace. Syrian auxiliaries build embankments to the east of the upper city. The chiefs of the Idumeans send emissaries to surrender to Titus, but Simon discovers the plot and executes the conspirators. Okay, so one of the bands of bad guys is going to give up. The other band of bad guys finds out about it and has them killed. There are masses of deserters to the Romans, most of whose lives are spared by Titus. Over 40,000 captured citizens are released by the Romans, but the rebels, including women and children, are sold as slaves. Due to the excess of supply, they are priced low. Okay, there's so many slaves, now the price of slaves is dropping. Uh, Priest Jesus Ben Thabuti delivers some of the temple treasures to Titus in exchange for protection. Included are two candelabra, solid gold, and massive tables, bowls, platters, veils, the high priest garments, including the precious stones, and many other items. The temple treasurer Phineas provides more, including priestly clothing and incense. Uh, these treasures are eventually displayed by Vespasian in Rome in the newly constructed Temple of Peace. Josephus gains permission from Titus to release his brother and 50 friends. Um, Josephus enters the temple compound and liberates 190 captive women and children that he knows and receives sacred books. He recognizes three acquaintances who had been crucified and Titus allows them to be taken down. Two die, one survives. Uh, the earthworks against the upper city are completed in 18 days. The rebels panic, fleeing or surrendering without a fight, despite their superior position in the massive Herodian towers. Many hide in the ravine below Siloam and then in the underground passages. Now, again, Josephus counts this as an act of God because there was really likely no way the Romans were going to knock down the Herodian towers at all. They were much more fortified, even than the walls they'd gone through before. And they were in the upper city, so they did have access to the underground passages and to water and stuff. Um, so again, this looks like an act of God, because they were in a very, very well-fortified position. The Romans now command the whole city. They plant standards on the walls and loot the city. All of Jerusalem is in flames. Everyone in Jerusalem is made a prisoner. Many that are armed are put to death, as are the old and feeble. Fronto is appointed to determine the fate of the rest. Those under age 17 are sold. The strong are sent to work camps, others to the games. The number of prisoners taken in the entire war, 97,000. Died during the siege, 1.1 million. This large number during the siege was due to the Passover celebration, as Jews from many countries had been in the city for the festival when the siege began. Josephus tells skeptical readers this number is consistent with Cestius's population estimates under Nero. So you might not think that 1.1 million people could fit inside these walls, but Josephus says during the feast festival times, that is how much it can, it can swell. Simon hides in the underground passages with his close followers. He attempts to tunnel his way out, but eventually gives up and arises out of the ground at the side of the temple wearing a royal purple robe. 
he surrenders quietly to General Terentius Rufus. This alerts the Romans to the passages, which are then searched. 2,000 bodies are found. John gives up from starvation. John is sentenced to life in prison, while Simon is to be executed at the triumph in Rome. Romans set fire to the outlying quarters of the city and tear the walls to the ground. Titus orders the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. <laughs> Leaving only the tallest towers and a small portion of the wall on the west, the 10th legion is left to garrison Jerusalem. The 12th legion, which had been defeated by the Jews under Cestius, is banished to the Armenian border. The 5th and 15th legions accompany Titus to Caesarea and then to Alexandria. The Arch of Titus in Rome, which is still there, depicting uh, the menorah taken from the Jerusalem temple as displayed during the triumphal march. So he marches back to Rome and marches down the boulevard with the candelabra from the temple and a whole bunch of slaves. And then John is killed in front of everybody. This uh, triumphal arch is still in Rome, and they say that no Jew has ever walked through it since. Uh, it was built after, not during the triumphal march. Now, several things about this. There are those who are preterists, uh, who believe that the book of Revelation was fulfilled in AD 70, that all the prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and blood running as high as the bridles on the horses was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Josephus goes into a lot of detail about how much blood there was. It ran down the city. There was so much blood that the, that the Romans could not navigate the cobblestone streets in their hobnailed um, war sandals um, for days. It slowed, it slowed down their progress substantially because of the slickness of all the streets from the blood running down out of Jerusalem. The massive amounts of murder and uh, torture and death uh, of all kinds that mostly the Jews did on themselves during the siege. And again, they, they could have all got along fine for like 100 years and survived the siege if they'd had food enough and they'd worked together. They probably could have repelled the Romans, uh, except for God being against them at all, which is a you know, wild card <laughs> if ever there was one. So one of the things is the amazing depravity um, that Josephus talks about there never being a class of people as ugly as this as, as wicked and cold hearted as this and yet Revelation says that the last generation will be the worst the world has ever seen unlike anything we've seen before and the destruction of Jerusalem ranks up there with some of the worst, ugliest, nastiest, most horrifying things in human history. And specifically as a judgment from God on a people. Now, if America is Babylon and God intends to punish her as Revelation, the book of Revelation suggests, and we are going to see eyes, see things that our eyes can't believe they're seeing. We're likely to see stuff a lot worse than the, than the destruction of Jerusalem. I, I think it's interesting that one woman 
there's only story of one one account of cannibalism in in this story. Now there may have been others that did it secretly or whatever, but there's one tale, and the act itself so horrified the criminals that they left her alone and and shuddered at, at it being the, the most fearful thing they'd ever seen. It was, it was so horrible to the sensitivities of that people that it spread throughout the city immediately and across the wall to the Romans where they shuddered and, and looked down on the Jews even more for, for how ugly it was. It was so rare and so horrible. And one of the curses God promises on, on nations that disobey, Deuteronomy 28 says that if you continue disobeying during the siege of your cities, the most delicate woman around you who won't even touch the floor barefoot for how delicate she is will not share the fruit of her womb with her husband or her other children who are starving to death. She will eat her after, the afterbirth and the child herself. Um, and that God will put that on you because of your disobedience. Now, there's only the one story of cannibalism in this, in the whole, the whole story of the fall of Jerusalem. And yet the people were so horrified by it that it, it shocked them and became one of the portents, one of the signs that God was against this more than any other. Now, I wonder, as I've been thinking about this, would this generation, this people that, that are walking the earth right now, whether with gray hair or, or not, would this people be so shocked and horrified at the very, very thought of it that they would react the same way? Is, are we a people, let's just say in the United States, that is so horrified by the idea of cannibalism that, that we want to go out and throw up, that our, that our stomachs turn, that it changes our behavior, that we, are, that we are unwilling to even consider something so vile. I don't think so. I think Satan has done a lot to demystify cannibalism and us to tell stories about the Donner Party and other situations where they had no choice but to eat each other and they voted on which to eat first and it was a very pragmatic, reasonable decision that you this is what you do to survive. And I don't I don't think this generation would be nearly as affected um, in our age of science and whatever uh, as as was Josephus's era which really scares me because if we're in a generation that doesn't shudder at the idea of a mother eating her own child and might even see it as a perfectly reasonable response to a situation where you have no other food and the kid really has no hope, they are pragmatists who will kill you for a can of soup, who have no moral absolutes, who have no respect for life, and when the chips really get down, when it really hits the fan, there's no telling what they'll do. There's no telling how ugly and evil and wicked they will be to one another because they have lost something that even the brigands 
even the highwaymen and the most horrible of the Jews in this story still shuddered at some things. And I'm not sure we do corporately. I uh, think that's pretty scary. You need to prepare your heart, steal yourself, look it up, to endure more death, more famine, more ugliness, more harassment, more hatred, more persecution than anything Josephus writes about. You may need to prepare yourself to be that guy that says nothing but woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem, woe to America, won't respond with anything else, doesn't care about anything else, depends on somebody to give him something to eat because they feel sorry for him, doesn't talk back to the people with him, and just says nothing but the Lord, what the Lord tells him to say until his dying breath. Are you ready for that? That's a martyr. I mean, that's seven years of horrible, like not fighting with people, not arguing with people, not defending yourself, not nothing. Just say what I tell you to say until a rock lands on you and kills you. That challenges me. And, uh, I'll challenge you. What pastor goes to seminary and they say, okay, this is your calling. This is just this. This is the one sermon you're going to preach from now on to everyone all the time. Say nothing but this. Go. Wow. And there are going to be some. There's some now on YouTube preaching doom and destruction and and uh, judgment on America and everything else. And I know it's coming. I know it's coming. I know the common Eisen wasn't it and could have told him, you know, whatever. Just, I stay away from so much of the fear-mongering nonsense, but there is a reality that we need to be afraid, and it's coming, and we need to prepare our hearts for the worst time the world has ever seen. Jerusalem's a very small place, geographically speaking. And you got a million people in there killing each other, starving to death. Out here in the suburbs, we got farms. Sorry, we got farms, we got cows, we got water, we got whatever. I don't know how people in the urban core are going to make it through a complete meltdown or worse, a real siege where the government or somebody's determined to round you up and kill you all. But we need to get ready. You need to hear God. You need to listen real good. You need to do whatever he says. And even if he says, just go preach woe to America, then you go do that. If he says, go live in Costa Rica, by all means, go live in Costa Rica or wherever he's telling you. I'm not, I'm not one to tell you not to. He's told me, there's going to be a safe place. There's going to be a refuge. We're going to prepare places. America is the hardest mission field on the planet because they think they're safe and warm and comfy, and um, they're not. Anyway, I encourage you to uh, pick up Josephus and read it for yourself. It's pretty horrifying. And um, 
after I'm done talking here, I'm going to put some pictures of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Let you just think about it for a minute and uh, think about what you're prepared to endure for the name of Jesus. That's all for now. It's December 31st, 2013. As Gregorian calendars go, we're right on the edge of this one, so I wish you a happy 2014 to the degree that happy is the goal the Lord has for you. In Spanish, when I grew up in Mexico, they don't ask you when you got saved. They say, ¿Cuánto tiempo tienes en la obra? Which means, how long have you had your hand to the plow? How long have you been at the work? And uh, someone asked you, not when you said a sinner's prayer, not when you realized Jesus was real, not when you joined a church, but how long have you had your hands on the plow? Thanks for listening. Comment, subscribe, share the video with your friends. Whatever. We're here and we're enduring. We'll pray for you as you pray for us. God bless you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, I'm going to speak about something that might not seem like a Christmas message but uh, it has Christ at the center of it. And there's a very good reason why today, on what might be my last message here of the year, uh, there might be one more, I felt compelled to give you some clear grounds for great faith in God and great hope concerning the future. And uh, not only that, but some insight that when you see it, if you grasp it, it takes the breath away. What I'm talking about specifically is a particular fulfilled prophecy which we hardly ever read the Bible or quote it and think of it as a fulfilled prophecy because most of our lives, all we've ever heard people say, is that those days are still coming and that's not actually true. We were most of us raised, including myself, in circumstances where we were often hearing that these days will come when there'll be wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilences in many places and that these would be just the signs of the beginning of the end of the world and so on and so forth but we never realized all of that was already fulfilled. And I'm going to show you today from scripture and from history that it's been already done. And when you see it, it's astounding what has actually occurred in history. And Christians need to know this so that in considering might what yet be to come, they can sort the wheat from the chaff. Anyway, we'll, we'll get there. But I wanted to make a note... Um, about Bible prophecy, and it's this. There's a lot of prophecy in Scripture that's already been fulfilled. And with respect to what we know has been fulfilled, uh, we have greater rejoicing generally in the life of the church year after year than any of the stuff we think has not yet been fulfilled. For example, all the prophecies about Jesus coming 
and dying for our sins. When you think about Isaiah 53, for example, and the way he carried our sins and was crucified, the way he was you know, beaten to a pulp and whipped and, and all that he experienced and felt, and it's all written up, not only in Isaiah 53, but Psalm 22. And we read those passages and it's just astounding. And it is the glory of the church. And not only that, it's produced such phenomenal music. Like, for example, Handel's Messiah. You know the kind of stuff we sing at Christmas? Handel's Messiah, you know, probably the most glorious of all. And, but all of that has come from prophecy that's already been fulfilled. It's written there in the Bible. We know it's been fulfilled. And we don't sit around here expecting that it will still be fulfilled. We don't go to scriptures that says he was led as, a, as a, like a sheep to the slaughter. And, you know, like a, a lamb before a shearer is his duck. We don't read that and think, oh, this day's coming. You know? We know it's been fulfilled. And, our, we, and because we know it's been fulfilled, it's actually put something in place that's glorious. And we have this huge hope as a result of it. Well, I'm going to show you what applies to another passage of that. There's other, there's other passages in Scripture too that at the time they were spoken and written were prophecies but came to be fulfilled. For example... The Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now, he's already the father of many nations. We don't read that and think, well, one day that's going to happen. No, we rejoice in what God did with Abraham. And then there's David. You know, Samuel comes along and anoints him as just a kid. says, one day you'll be the king of Israel. We don't sit around and say, oh, there's a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. No, we recognize it. And then what I'm saying is in the ones we recognize we find tremendous vigor and hope and joy and in a sense it empowers us. It empowers where we're heading and if we, if we can sort the wheat from the chaff with respect to what Jesus had to say about what was to come, in other words, if we can separate what has already been fulfilled from what may yet be still fulfilled, we will actually be in a better position, not a weaker one. And so you need to glory in these prophecies for what they are, you know, and, and not for what they're not. Which, when we, when we delve into them for what they're not, it's actually a huge distraction to us and it weakens us. So anyway, that which is fulfilled gives us far better doctrine too. And so, um, let's, let's take a look at it. The the age of the Jews, that's a, that's a phrase in scripture. The, the age of the Jews was specifically a period of history which was so clear cut and was going to end at a certain point, it's so clear that an angel was sent to Daniel to tell him how many years it would be. And... Um, up until, up until those years ran out, there was a Levitical economy in the world. What do we mean by a Levitical economy? We mean there was a temple operating with a Levitical priesthood and sacrifices were being brought every day. All the sacrifices represented Jesus, by the way. But the tithes were brought and paid to the priests and the priests paid tithes to the high priests and the whole nation devolved around a specific economy that had those elements of Levitical law 
as the foundation and bedrock and structure of the whole thing. So a Levitical economy operated under the Old Covenant. And when the Old Covenant came to an end, the Lord allowed the Levitical economy to continue a bit longer while the gospel was being preached for a whole generation, 40 years, was being preached to the Jews to bring as many of them as possible into Christ before the Lord completely shut down the Levitical economy. And that time period, somewhere between AD 33 and AD 70, AD 33 is when Christ died and was resurrected. And AD 70 is when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple destroyed, the priesthood destroyed, the offerings destroyed, the whole of Jerusalem destroyed. Somewhere in that period, AD 33 to 70, the number of years that the angel gave Daniel ran out and expired. When the angel spoke to Daniel, he said that a certain number of weeks of years had been allocated for his people. And he said there would be seven, and then there would be 62, and then there'd be one. A total of 70 weeks. Now, in this prophetic language, we're talking weeks of years. A day represented a year. So basically the angel was saying you've got 490 years and the end of the age of the Jews ends and the age of the Gentiles begins. What, why did he say seven and then 62 and then one? The initial seven began when, in fact the angel said from the time that the rebuilding of the city is decreed. And so this was a decree put out by, the, by Cyrus, who was the emperor of the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians, that which had swallowed up Babylon. And put out a decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. From that point, seven weeks began. What's that? Seventy years. It actually took seventy years. It took seventy years for them to get back and rebuild the city and reestablish the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. Uh, and then when that seven years was up, he said another 62 decree, two years is decreed until Messiah comes. Now, my purpose today wasn't to get into that detail, but simply to say the, the age of the Jews was specified and that when it ended, the whole Levitical economy was shut down. And we need to look at what Jesus had to say about it. There's a, there's a particular concept or principle I want you to get a hold of today, and it's this. That when God reaches out to his people, he will reach and reach and reach and reach with a whole heart offering nothing but mercy. But there comes a period when a day of reckoning is, is scheduled at the very end of it. And we live in such a period of mercy now as this, did the Jews then. When Jesus came and began his earthly ministry, Jesus offered Israel and the Jews nothing but mercy and the kindness of God. No matter what their sins, he came to the worst of the sinners, you know, the publicans and sinners, and reached out to them all and 
In every respect, he offered the mercy of God. In fact, at the very beginning of his ministry, do you remember, he stood up in the synagogue right after he was baptized and he'd gone into the desert for 40 days of fasting and came out and he went to the synagogue and he opened the scroll and he read. Do you remember what he read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, you know, release for the captives and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he stopped right there, but he stopped mid-sentence. He didn't finish the sentence. Let me put on the screen for you Isaiah 61. This is, this is the passage he read. Jesus stands in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah the prophet. And here it is. Spirit of the Lord's upon me because the Lord's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he stopped right there. He never read the next bit. This was at the beginning of his three-year ministry. He never said, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the whole time that Jesus is ministering, he's ministering out of the favour of God, he's only offering mercy, restoration, sustenance, forgiveness, healing, deliverance. He will give the love of God to anybody. But Jesus full well knew that he was also anointed to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. See, he said up here he was anointed, the Lord's anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And he proclaimed that day of vengeance at the end of his three years of ministry. And he specifically said it. Now, your translation won't necessarily use the word vengeance, but if you go back to the King James one, it does use the word vengeance, where Jesus, at the end of his ministry, in the midst of pronouncing all these woes on Jerusalem, said, this, uh, these, rather, these are the days of vengeance. So, in a minute, we're going to take a look at what Jesus did say about those days, but I'm trying here to give you the background and the big picture. So what did he do when he got to these days? At the end of his three years of ministry, after having held out mercy and life, he made these proclamations. That he was going to bring the vengeance of God and retribution to his enemies. He pronounced all those woes on the Pharisees and teachers, if you're not familiar with it, Matthew 23, a very long chapter, has Jesus making the, the strictest and most condemning statements he's ever made, seven long statements of woe that is coming upon the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the leaders of Israel for the way in which they have treated God and rejected God and rejected grace. But not only that, for the way in which they have put burdens upon people, locked people up under legalism, and made people's lives miserable. He pronounces all these woes on them. You've got to read all of Matthew 23 to, to get a grip on that. But it's huge. At the end of pronouncing all these woes, he then grieves over the unteachableness of Jerusalem. We'll look at that in a moment. But prior 
just prior to pronouncing the woes in Matthew 23, he tells a parable. You find this in Matthew 21. Now Jesus told many parables and a number of them were specifically parables against uh, the Jewish leaders and the, and the fate of the Jewish nation. And I want to show you a little part of this one. This one is so pointed. This is in Matthew 21. And uh, first of all, verses 38 to 40. It will appear. There it is. Now this is the parable of the tenants. You might be familiar with it. Jesus tells the parable. He says, uh, Landlord built a wonderful vineyard, planted great vines and put a fence around it and, and uh, a wine press and off he goes. And, but he rented the, the vineyard out to tenants. Now in the parable, the tenants are the leaders of the Jews. Pharisees, teachers of the law, priests and so on. In Jesus' parable, the landlord is looking for his annual share, but they're abusing the servants he said that sent. Finally, they kill the son he sent. So it's getting obvious, isn't it? Finally, the, the, the tenants in the vineyard kill the owner's son. And Jesus, there's two versions of this parable, one in Matthew and the other one is common to Luke and Mark. In the Matthew one, oh, well, here it is here. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, let's, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, and this is Jesus, therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Next verse. He will bring, the crowd answers him in, in Matthew's version, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. See, this is the end of the age of the Jews and about to move into the age of the Gentiles. By the way, in the age of the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles are equal. All the Jews come into the gospel, or they're welcome to. All the Gentiles are welcome to come into the gospel. But there's a new covenant, and it's a new age. Now, this is Matthew's version of it, but when you read Luke and Mark's version of it, Jesus has something to say that, it, that Matthew didn't include here, and I want to put it on the screen for you. Uh, Luke, do you have that one, Susanna? Perhaps I'll just quote it to you. In the other versions of the parable, Jesus said straight out, he will come and kill those tenants. Do you remember reading that in the Bible? It's part of the parable. Jesus said, he will come and kill those tenants. And in fact, he did. And the prophecy, that's a prophecy, and it's all been fulfilled. Now, what else did Jesus say? He said, when he was carrying his cross, you remember the women of Jerusalem were weeping for him? And he stopped and he said to them, do not weep for me, but for yourselves. Weep for yourselves and your children. He said an army would come and surround Jerusalem that before that signs would appear in the heavens and that his followers would flee to the mountains, were to flee to the mountains, he said that the temple would be totally, totally, totally destroyed. And he said that the, the misery, the hatred, I mean, these weren't his years, but he said the distress of those days. Now, I'll tell you what was to come. 
When it eventually came, the distress of those days included the most terrible misery of hatred and betrayal and of oppression and bloodshed to annihilation that it is imaginable. Jesus himself said, those will be the worst days ever on the face of the earth and will never be repeated again. Nothing will ever be as bad as that again. In fact, he said that unless those days were shortened, none of them would have survived. You know that in Jerusalem, there would have been in excess of two million people. In fact, at one Passover, when the population was counted, because at Passover time, a whole lot of visitors come to the city. And they knew how many people were in the city by working out the sacrifices. The priests who would have to sacrifice animals because they're all there for a feast never allowed a sacrifice that was for less than 10 people. And some of them were for 20 people, but the priests had the number of sacrifices for that Passover and the number of sacrifices was 270 some thousand. That means there was in excess of 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at the Passover. And more than that, that couldn't be counted. Now, however, when Jerusalem was finally shut up uh, by the armies of Rome turning up suddenly and unexpectedly, there was a feast on. I think it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so a whole lot of people had flooded into the city. And so there were some 2 million or more people. 97,000 were finally marched away as slaves. And, and how the rest of them, most of them died, is a terrible, terrible story. And it wasn't the Romans who killed most of them. But we'll come to that in a minute. I'm, I'm wanting to impress upon you that when the day of wrath and retribution comes, God fulfills his word. But at the same time, when he offers you mercy and salvation, he will fulfill his word. And it's for you to be on the right side of the word of God, not the wrong side. But everything that God says, he does. Back to, back to the history. Jesus said that such a period would never occur again. And all that he said in AD 33. And not only that, but he said that all those things that he had listed, would all take place before the current generation that lived at that time passed away. And they did. He said that about AD 33 and the final destruction took place 37 years, some 37 years later. If a biblical generation is reckoned at 40 years. So, the writer of the Hebrews, this is Hebrews 8.13, writing in the early 60s, in other words, prior to the, the revolt of Judea against Rome and, and prior to the Roman armies coming and spending three years basically wiping out large numbers of cities and villages and population groups and, and moving them around and, and selling off many of them as slaves and all, all that happened. The writer to the Hebrews was writing just a few years before that happened. Just a few years, in the early 60s. And that didn't start happening until AD 67. But look at what he wrote. Probably just five years before, 
he's referring to the new covenant and the old, and he says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And it did disappear. And that's what I wanted to make very clear to you today. Friends, um, the Roman army came in that period around AD 67, but it came for a reason. The reason was that the Jews had revolted. And one of the things that had caused their revolt or it inspired them to revolt and rise up against the Romans, and by the way, the Romans had put this Pax Romana in place that covered the whole world. Roads everywhere, peace everywhere, law and order everywhere. And um, you'd think that when Jesus prophesied there'll be wars and rumours of wars, in fact, if you were going to prophesy something different, that was the time to do it. Because all the history of man has had wars and rumours of wars, as you know, including the 20th century, which is the worst of all. But at the time Jesus said that, AD 33, the whole world was under the Roman peace. And these disturbances were not going on, so he prophesied that something was going to be different. And it was different. And from the time that Jesus said these things, from, from the time that Jesus was crucified, until the day the temple was destroyed, that whole known world was full of earthquakes, full of insurrections, full of bloodletting, and the story is astounding. And I'll give you a few examples of that in just a moment. But it was because of the revolt of the Jews and they set up their own government, or tried to, it was a strange government. Josephus, by the way, the Jewish historian, ended up the governor of Galilee. And it's very interesting to read his history of how he tried to govern that land and Josephus became greatly loved by the Galilean Jews because he brought in such order and such righteousness to their lives in a period of barbarity where there are so many people all rising up in insurrection and trying to get control of population groups and wealth. And all of this going on in Judea is an astounding period of time. And it's interesting to read how Josephus, uh, an inspired man and a pious man, was, was so wise in the way he handled so many things. But uh, eventually the Romans came and the first thing they did was subjugate Galilee and took city after city, village after village of all this area that was his until finally all the people had been fighting with him, all his friends all killed themselves, but he was taken alive by the Romans and kept, uh, kept in the camp of Vespasian and Titus and became their translator. Josephus was highly regarded and honoured by the Jews and by the Romans, unusual man, and he ended up writing the history of the whole period as an eyewitness. And uh, to make sure that, because I've read other books, to make sure that I wasn't reading in other books things that were inaccurate, I this week sat down and read Josephus's history and read particularly that whole section on the wars of the Jews. And so I can say to you that all this stuff I've read in other books is absolutely in accord with the, with the history that Josephus recorded. Well, the Judea, this uh, Roman army and working its way through Galilee, the bloodshed was incredible. 
Uh, it wasn't unusual for them to put 10,000 people to the sword in any given city. There was one city where they finally got possession of the city. They had put many people to the sword, but then they rounded up all the men of the city into the stadium. They went through the crowd and put to the sword every man that was above a certain age. Then they chose out of the crowd the 8,000 strongest young men and sent them off to Nero because Nero needed an isthmus built like a canal. And the rest of them, 33,200, they sold into slavery. And this was just one town. But the battles were such that the rivers and the streams and the creeks of Galilee ran red with blood they said there were so many dead bodies in the Jordan River you couldn't cross it and the whole of the Dead Sea was full of bodies. Tens of thousands. That was Galilee. They also cleaned up Idumea and uh, what was the name of the other place? Perea. These were all Jewish areas too. And finally they came to Judea and worked their way through Judea. And when the army, Roman armies initially got to Jerusalem and started to set up camp, for some reason, whoever the commander was, it wasn't... Uh, Vespasian or Titus he broke off suddenly that was the point at which all the Christians left the city but of course it was the feast of unleavened bread I think and, and all the Jews in the region around all flooded into the city so Jerusalem then was locked up however the Romans weren't there they, they came back and here's where something absolutely terrible happened it was a lawless time. There was no real established government like we know today. Remember, Rome had been booted out. And uh, they were trying to govern themselves, but they were governless. And criminal gangs, we're talking huge criminal gangs, one man, Simon, alone had 40,000 followers and they used to ravage the countryside, killing and looting other Jewish towns. And they got into Jerusalem and got control of the city. But then another man by the name of John Levi, uh, a wicked, scheming man, and yet, yet someone who got a great following, he got into the city, and he had another whole cohort. And so there were actually two very large groups of seditious tyrants controlling the city and fighting each other all the time for control and killing innocent people, and then... In one of those groups, somebody separated, and so then they had three groups, and the city on three levels had three different groups, and they were fighting each other constantly, and at the same time, murdering wealthy people and taking their goods. And uh, then they let the Idumeans in. One of those groups led in the Idumeans, who were in another group, Jewish group, uh, and tens of thousands of them. One night, there was a huge storm one night with earthquakes and everything, and, and these people went down and cut open the gates and let them in. The Idumeans killed 8,500 Jews in one night, including the fact that they sought out the high priest and murdered him. And Josephus reckons that from the time of the high, murder of the high priest, the destruction of Jerusalem began. Does this sound grisly? It is grisly. And having read it this week, you know, you feel kind of gutted all the stuff you read. Most of the killing and death in Jerusalem was Jews killing Jews. The whole city was cursed. And uh, it's too long a tale to tell you all about it, 
But I want to go back simply to the words of Jesus where he talked about what would be the signs that this destruction would come. If we can just concentrate for a few minutes on that, it will help us. Now, all of this is found in Matthew 24, and it's also found in Luke 21. Do you remember? Oh, well, let's, let's begin, I suppose, with Matthew 23 and uh, 37 to 38. No, 33 to 36, isn't it? Matthew 23 and 33 to 36. Remember I said that Jesus denounced the Pharisees. A whole chapter, 23, and this comes at the end of the chapter. Can you, this, is, this is Jesus speaking. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This is very blunt language, isn't it? But the day of vengeance had come. Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. By the way, in the Jewish Old Testament, the books were in a different order. So the blood of Abel was in the first book and the blood of Zechariah is in the last book of the order they had. Our order is different. Be murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. What? The blood of all the righteous that have been shed would come on one generation, Jesus said. Now we look at the next piece along. Here it is. O Jer- this is where he weeps over the city. O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to your desolate. And so now, he, he says all this in the temple precincts. And as he's walking away, his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, look at these fantastic buildings. These were Galileans, these disciples. You know, they you get to see this very often. It's like someone from a little country town ending up in, in Sydney and seeing the opera house, you know. They say, Lord, look at, look at these fantastic buildings. Look at these huge stones. Friends, we're talking stones that, that are... 40 foot, some of them 90 foot long and white marble they were, they were white marble and they were so perfectly fitted together you, you, you couldn't even see seams and, and impossible for the Roman engines in the sea, you know, hammering them for week in, week out day and night, hurling huge rocks off their siege engines couldn't, couldn't move them the, the, it was built so astoundingly. Huge money had been poured into it. Herod, it was Herod who built all of this and the building had only been finished four years before Titus destroyed it. It was still being built in Jesus' day. But they said to him, Lord, look at these fantastic stones, look at these fantastic buildings. And this is where Jesus said, you see these stones, not one will be left standing upon another. When the Romans finally got possession of the city, they pulled apart uh, all the city except for three towers that were in a far part of the city that was so phenomenally built, totally impregnable, except that the Jews ran away from them. They could never have taken them, they said, and they left it as, uh, as an honour to Titus. The rest of the city was totally, totally, totally destroyed. Even the foundation stones were dug up and where they had been, a Roman centurion 
plowed the ground. The only other thing that was left was the western wall. This was not part of the temple, but Herod had extended and extended the ground and he needed a retaining wall way out here. And the Romans left that because they wanted a flat place for their, uh, their, their the legion to camp. You know, they needed to leave a garden place after they destroyed the city. That's why the western wall was there. But with respect to the temple, all the porticos of the temple, and it was huge, by the way. You know, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the Romans never wanted to destroy it. They saw it as one of the prizes of the Roman Empire. They never wanted to destroy it. And on the fateful day, Titus frantically ran, tried everything to get the soldiers to put the fire out. But uh, it, it, it was a day that just went amok. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of mixing up all parts of the story here, which I didn't intend to do. I want to get back to what Jesus had said would be the signs that this stuff was coming. First of all, he said um, there'd be false Christs and false prophets. Remember Jesus said that? Many will come in my name, don't believe them. They'll say, Christ is in the desert, don't go out. As it turns out, Within one year of Jesus uttering that statement, all the way clear through for the next 37 years, false Christ after false Christ arose in Judea and again and again led people out into the wilderness, sometimes 30,000 at a time. And, and in rebellions, and the Romans would rise up and kill them and cut the heads off the leaders again and again and again. I've got the names of some of the guys right here who did this. Astounding stories. The first was within a year and his name was Josephus the Samaritan. And then a little later there was a, a fellow called Thutis. He managed to persuade a huge multitude to get their belongings and follow him to the Jordan. But the governor, whose name was Phaedus at that time, the Roman governor, pursued them and, and killed many of them, including the imposter whose head they cut off. And this, repeated, this story is repeated again and again and again through those 37 years. I need to give you more of that. Wars and rumors of wars, he said. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. These things must come. The end is not yet. He also said, uh, Susanna put it on the board, Matthew 24, 6-8, I think is the... There were eight signs he gave, by the way. I'll read what they were. He said there'd be eight signs that this destruction was coming. And all eight signs took place, not in one or two ways, but in dozens of ways, gross ways, in that 37 years. Here were the eight signs, he said. False messiahs and prophets, wars and rumors of wars, nations trying to get each other, that's two. Three was famines, four with earthquakes in many places, five was persecution of believers, six falling away from the faith, seven, love growing cold, and eight, the gospel being preached to the whole world, and all of those things took place absolutely. Now, with regard to false messiahs we've covered, what about wars? It's, uh, I'm not sure I even want to tell you about this stuff. But in Josephus' history, he has 150 pages detailing the revolts and the uprisings and the ethnic groups, one, one killing another, 150 pages and all of them flowing with blood. 
and the numbers are astounding, and all in that 37-year period. For example, he also said rumors of war. So here's, here's an example of the rumor of a war. The Emperor Caligula ordered his statue to be placed in the Temple of Jerusalem. And the Jews persisted in refusing him, but there was so much fear that a war was going to break out and the Romans were going to come at that time that the Jews were so full of apprehension they neglected to sow their crops. And about the same time, a great number of Jews fled from Babylon because there was a pestilence. You know what a pestilence is? A plague. And they moved to a city, Seleucia, where the Greeks and Syrians rose against them and killed 5,000 of them. And it didn't stop there, but it happened also at Perea. And four years afterwards, um, there was a riot in Jerusalem because a Jewish, a Roman soldier caused an offense in the temple and there was such a violent riot, 10,000 Jews were trodden to death in the streets by themselves. At Caesarea, the Jews had a sharp contention with the Syrians. The Syrians rose up against them and more than 20,000 Jews were killed. And it's this, this rage spread then wherever Jews and Syrians lived and so the, there was slaughter pro, that prevailed in Damascus, Tyre, Ascalon, Gadaris, Scythopolis and in Damascus 10,000 Jews were slain in one hour and at Scythopolis 13,000 murdered in one night. It's horrifying stuff. But Jesus said, the blood of all the righteous slain from Abel to Zechariah would come upon one generation and the prophecy was fulfilled. At the same time that all of this, and, and by the way, in the siege of Jepata, more than 40,000 Jews were killed. But at the same time that all that was going, the other end of the Roman Empire was having huge struggles too and in the space of 18 months, the Roman Empire had no less than four separate emperors, every one of them was killed by violence or suicide. And there were groups rising up everywhere in rebellion against Rome, including the Gauls and the Germans. So a period rife with wars and rumours of wars. We get on to something more pleasant. The story's not finished there. Earthquakes. I'll give you a quick summary. But there was an earthquake when Jesus died. A couple of days later, there was an earthquake when he rose from the dead. And the number of earthquakes then, from then until the destruction of Jerusalem, was huge. And here are some of the places. Twice earthquakes at Rome and Apamea in Syria and in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chius and Samos, all places where the Jews had settled, and at Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae and uh, Campania. You, you don't know where all these places are, but it's all over the Roman map, wherever the Jews had settled and then in Jerusalem. And uh, here's a couple of comments. Edward Hayes uh, Plumtree writes, perhaps no period in the world's history has ever been so marked by these convulsions as that which intervenes between the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
famed philosopher Seneca also wrote, how often have cities in Asia, how often in Achaia, been laid low by a single shock of earthquake? How many towns in Syria, how many in Macedonia have been swallowed up? How often has this kind of devastation laid Cyprus in ruins? How often has Paphos collapsed? Not infrequently are tidings brought to us of other destructions of entire cities, all in that 37 years. And here we are today, we sit here, most of us, reading those verses and thinking it's out in front somewhere. Friends, it's already happened. Christ's prophecy was fulfilled with respect to the end of that age and the destruction of Jerusalem and the shutting down of the Levitical economy and the end of the old covenant. There's more. Perhaps this will be of interest to you. He said there'd be signs. Josephus recorded numbers of signs and I'm not going to go through the whole list. But the most astounding was that for one year before the siege of Jerusalem, he called it a star and he called it a comet. But it hung in the sky in the shape of a sword for one year. So immediately over the city of Jerusalem, a sword in the sky. This, this, this is a, a portend of evil. And there are many other signs like that. And I don't have time to go into them. One of the most interesting, though, was that at the Passover feast, immediately prior to the siege of Jerusalem, the high priest led a heifer to the altar for sacrifice and in front of the altar and in front of all the high priests, the heifer gave birth to a lamb. And I know you you'd do a double take. It's recorded history and this occurred not in front of uneducated people and it didn't occur in some obscure place. It occurred at the height of the Passover, millions of Jews, and it occurred under the very hands of the highest priests and right at the altar of the temple. What's it saying? You know, it, was, it was clearly pointing. It's the sign of the Son of Man. You know, that God had provided a lamb in place of the sacrifices that they were relying on and many other such signs did the Lord give. And, and I'm sharing with you some of this strange and gruesome information because most people don't read much. In fact, this, the story is so huge you'd have to read it to be able to understand much of it at all. But I want you to know that Christ is the Lord of history. And he is the God of destiny. And he offers mercy, mercy, mercy. But he says a day of reckoning comes. A day of judgment comes. And we happen to be, just as in those days, not only the three years of Jesus where he offered mercy, but the gospel was preached in Jerusalem and many, many people in Jerusalem turned to Christ. They say the church was 100,000 people and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But through persecution they were thrust out and they went all over all the known world. Consequently, the apostles were able to say, and it's written in scripture in more than one place, that the gospel was preached to the whole world. Paul said the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Jesus said this gospel will be preached to all ethnic groups and then the end will come. 
He was talking the end of Jerusalem. The destruction of the old covenant. And it happened just like he said. And there's more. There's always more. But I think I've, I've worn you out with some of this dark information. By the way, Jesus also said persecution would arise against Christians. Guess when the worst persecutions of all occurred? In the years immediately prior to the revolt of the Jews and the war in Judea and the destruction of Jerusalem. What are we talking about? The persecutions of Christians under Nero, the Emperor Nero. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both were martyred in Rome under the persecutions of Nero. Jesus had said, you'll be persecuted, you'll be killed, he who endures to the end will be saved, and all the other things, I'm not going to go into any more detail, all the other things he said, the love of many will grow cold, all that happened, and there's a history that documents it in huge detail. What am I trying to show you? Friends, there's not much point us sitting around thinking that all that stuff has yet to happen. These things were done. And an old covenant was removed and a new covenant put in place and that gospel now goes to all nations. That all nations might be saved Today is the day of salvation. Just as Jesus offered nothing but mercy in that day, in this day he offers nothing but mercy. That is to you. To you who are seated here, he is offering mercy, forgiveness, love, acceptance. If you turn your heart to obey the gospel, there is a gospel that will save you. And in many places, the scripture says, behold, now is the day of salvation. But at the same time, when he says, a day of judgment is coming, the sun will come again. The, the son of man will appear in the sky. And the dead will be called out of their graves the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. The unrighteous resurrected to eternal damnation. The righteous resurrected to life and peace. And it all has to do with where you stand with God. Whether you are a friend or an enemy, but he gives every single person the opportunity to be a friend. It is not hard to turn to God and be his friend. <clears throat> when I read the histories and know the scriptures, I'm just astounded at the accuracy. 
For example, one of the things that Jesus said to them was, a day will come when your enemies, meaning the Romans, will throw up an embankment around you. And it's hard to work out. Some translations have it as a trench and some as an embankment. The Romans did that. Normally when they besieged the city, they didn't do that. You would, you would besiege the city and you would make impact on its walls and get a hole in the wall and surge in. The Jews and their resistance were, were so fanatical and the Jews were, Romans were least expecting it and they're trying to do other work. They'd rush out in huge numbers and with, with huge weight of numbers and fanaticism hurl themselves at the Romans. It was so difficult a period the Romans actually dug a trench all the way around Jerusalem and, and put up a, an embankment just to wait a bit longer while the famine got more of a grip on the city. All the details fulfilled. It's just astounding. And the reason I'm sharing it with you is because I want you to put your faith in God. There's not a sword hanging over us here today. What we have is a cross. And Jesus went to the cross so that no one would have to face eternal judgment ill-prepared. Jesus went to the cross so that no one would have to come to that eternal judgment and not have their sins forgiven, not have a saviour. He did it so that no one on that day would have to try and scrape by on their own righteousness, but so that he could give you righteousness as a gift, astounding gift. Friends, we serve a saviour who is willing to suffer, a saviour who gave not just his life, but was willing to suffer himself to the utmost extremity in the hope of saving you and others. But otherwise, without that salvation, the scripture says there is nothing left but the expectation of raging fire. Please, please be clear about this. I don't mean this to put on you a spirit of heaviness. I do mean this to put on you a sense uh, of two things. One, we have a God who knows what he's doing and whose word is fulfilled. What he has said, he does. And what he has yet promised, he will do. And the other thing I wanted to impress upon you today was a freedom. A freedom that comes from knowing the great tribulation occurred almost 2,000 years ago. We are not here sitting around waiting either for a secret rapture of the church or the great tribulation. Will there be a rapture at the end? Yes, insofar as all those who are dead will be resurrected and all those alive will be caught up to meet the Lord at the very end when he comes and judges the world. 
There was no secret rapture of the church before that. And uh, this idea, which I grew up with, I grew up with this idea because you didn't ever hear any other ideas. All you were ever told was that the church would be caught away and then the great tribulation would start and fortunately we weren't here for it. Most of that is irrelevant to your lives. What is relevant to your life is Christ is coming and he wants to find you doing what he's asked you to do when he comes. And the great business of our lives right now is we are supposed to evangelize nations. That's the simple message. In the end, if we, if we waste our time over speculation, speculating, you know, all these things that are supposed to happen, of which you, you can't prove any of it and most of it's already done, you, you, you become gutted, you become robbed of your strength. But if you think the Lord has already done and dusted with that, I mean, that, that great tribulation, by the way, do you know what the, the other name for the great tribulation is? It was called the time of Jacob's trouble, a reference to Israel. As far as we know, it's done and dusted. And the business of our lives right now, the business of Christian people right now, is to take up the agenda of Jesus Christ to take the word of God to the nations. Because we are still in the business of conquering nations, of discipling nations, exactly what Jesus told us to do. I like to think that what Patrick did in Ireland, people can still do. But Patrick wasn't hampered by a belief that said, any day now the Great Tribulation will start, and I'm not sure whether the rapture is at the beginning of it, in the middle of it, or at the end of it. He wasn't hampered by these beliefs. In fact, none of the church was for 1850 years. This is only a relatively recent ideas, idea, and I'll have you know, all over the world, people are now turning away from it because it's very obvious it's not working out that way. Patrick was not hampered by those beliefs. Consequently, he could go to Ireland confident in the power of the Holy Spirit, confident in the blood of Jesus, knowing his job was to disciple a nation and he took the gospel right through that whole nation. And there is no finer example of Christianity anywhere in the history of the church than the next 200 years in Ireland. And it's going to happen again. I believe India will come to Christ. Indonesia will come to Christ. And these great movements are taking place in those nations as we speak today. In fact, both India and Indonesia if they had half the Christians in them, they do have, they'd be more Christian than Australia is right now. And that's just a statistic. A statistic. Must be tired. Time to quit and get coffee. I'm tr listen, it's all ended up feeling too heavy. I, I was trying to say, listen, 
This is wonderful stuff. We can throw off a yoke of bondage here and realize the freedom of our lives is ahead of us. Live for Christ. Live for the gospel. You know, live to enjoy God. Live with the belief we can take the word of God to nations and we will see nations change and one day Jesus will come. If if what happened to Jerusalem is a shadow of something yet to happen, then what is yet to happen will be spiritual and not natural, just as many of the other shadows. But I want you to remember these words of Jesus concerning the siege of Jerusalem. In fact, I stopped explaining it to you because it was so dark and terrible. The story is much worse than anything I've told you. But by the time of the end of that siege in Jerusalem, the altar in Jerusalem of God's temple was covered with rivers of human blood. All of the temple was covered with blood and there was a huge pool of human blood at one end of the temple gone stagnant. And all of it at the hands of Jews killing other Jews. The city was cursed. And Titus himself said, we could never have conquered this city, but God fought against it. And it's worse than anything I've told you. And Jesus said, the distress of those days will never be equaled again. That's the good news. You don't have to sit here in some fear that the day will come when that's what it will be like for the whole world. We must be believing that the gospel will still change nations. I'm giving you your freedom to think more broadly about it and let the Bible talk for itself without some of these narrow doctrines that we have been burdened with for a long time. Some good people have preached those doctrines, but like you and me, they grew up under them and and assumed them. But most of the church historically never heard such a thing. And even most of the church in our day doesn't believe such things. Will there be troubles from time to time? You betcha. Will there be persecutions? Undoubtedly. Will there be martyrdom? Of course. That's all normal. But the level of distress as applied to that situation, Jesus said, will never be equal again. So we have to step back from it and see it all in perspective. Yes, distresses and troubles will come, persecutions and martyrdoms, but that's the, that's the stuff of faith, isn't it? That is the stuff of faith. Praise God. Yes, all over the world there are Christians being persecuted even now. But that particular prophecy was fulfilled. All right, well, I hope you take some hope out of all of that, some heart out of all of that. What to do now? Is there anybody who needs to get right with God? That would be a good thing. You know, this is the time of mercy, isn't it? 
It is. There's no judgment being threatened here today. Uh, yeah, it's, a day of judgment will come. What's the day? Today is the day of salvation. So, how many people are saved here today? How many people know the Lord? Well, you know, hopefully it's everybody. I went, look, Tony, you didn't put your hand up. Let's get Tony saved. Oh, two heads. Okay, however, friends, the gospel is still the gospel and needs to save your soul by you believing it and obeying it. Very simple. Thank God this is the day of mercy and the gospel will triumph. I want you to still your hearts. Let the Holy Spirit speak. There's no doubt there is something the Holy Spirit would say to every one of you just now if you'd listen to him. I want you to still yourself before the Lord and quiet in your heart and just be, be humble before the Lord, quiet for a few moments, and I want you to lay aside your own thoughts for a minute and just sense what is it that God is saying to you today. that I think should be your prayer. I think in thinking about the example of Patrick, it ought to be your prayer that your own life has power with the gospel. That is, that wherever you go, there is such an, an anointing on you, such a grace on you that you get victories in witnessing and touching people's lives and healing people. Patrick healed the sick and raised the dead and preached the gospel. But wherever he went, the Lord went ahead of him. And I think you should know that you serve such a God who will do that for you. And I think you should be asking him for that power. Free of encumbrances to believe the gospel and to offer the gospel to your fellow man because today is the day of salvation. Christ died for sinners and the gospel is with us. So how about everybody in the house take a moment to 
offer this kind of prayer. Ask the Lord if he would give you the grace you need, have the same effect on other people and your circumstances as Patrick did and as the apostles did for that matter. Reach out to God. Thank you for the word of God and for the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. We thank you for the grace and the anointing that you've given us. You've said, O Lord, that there is an anointing by which we know the truth. And I ask that that grace would be greatly, would be greatly upon us all today. You grant us understanding deep in the heart. Grant us eyes to see. Let now the Holy Spirit, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, rest all over the people of God as we open up this holy word today. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, good morning. And uh, I'm conscious it's a little warm today, although it's more the mugginess than the actual temperature. And um, unfortunately, we have a huge subject. The only only way I can make up for this is by making it passionately interesting. So, however, I am watching the clock, even though my watch stopped this morning. I get in here, and, so I'm taking it off because otherwise you keep fooling yourself. <laughs> and uh, I, can, uh, I can't see the clock in the kitchen because there's a pole in the road, so don't worry, I have my phone here. <laughs> Every now and again I have to have a peek. Anyway, so um, dear friends, we're taking on this morning one of the most interesting and difficult passages in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, although we looking at it in overview, it's in effect verse 24 that we're going to be making a specific study of. And believe me, that's a large enough subject. Now, the subject today is Daniel's 77s. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, you will, you will soon. This um, prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9 is astounding. It would be one of the most remarkable prophecies in the whole Bible, completely fulfilled, and it's remarkable in this respect especially that within the prophecy there is a very precise time frame when a whole series of things were to be done over 490 years. And they were done exactly as stated in Daniel chapter 9. That's what I want to show you today. Uh, If we may, we'll begin by reading the chapter. However, uh, could I say that the angel who brought this revelation to Daniel said that the reason Daniel was being given the revelation was so that he would understand. In other words, we're not meant to be mystified. It is understandable, and we are meant to understand it. 
Unfortunately, a lot of difficulty has been imported into these passages unnecessarily. Please hear me. On the whole, the difficulties have been imported into the passages unnecessarily by people who have theories about the end times of the world and because they're committed to those end time theories, they import the theories in and then have to turn the scriptures around to fit their end time theories. And so all the theories, then, uh, you know, in them trying to uphold them, they just institute a whole series of difficulties totally unnecessary. At our Christmas party recently, we had a little video. And uh, there's a little piece in that Christmas video pr produced by the girls. It's very interesting. I'm just taking it as an illustration of a point I'm about to make. Let's, let's play the little clip. Get a good seat at the dinner table. A good seat is everything on Christmas Day. Remember not to sit next to the talker. The sneezer. Crazy dog lady. Okay, the opening point was a good seat is everything at Christmas. Now, we're not talking about Christmas, but we are talking about a revelation of the Christ. We are talking about getting a good seat at the table of the Lord, whereby we eat of the Lord and understand properly what it is that's been put on the table for us. And just like in that little video, with the talkers and the sneezers and the crazy dog lady, a whole lot of crazy people have imported stuff into these prophecies that ought not be there. And today, I just want to lay it out plain and simple, and so you can see. We didn't have time to handle it all, but we will handle a very important part of it. So, dear friends, shall we read together, uh, if you've got your Bible, now we'll probably have different versions, but go to Daniel chapter 9, if we're going to talk about having a good seat at the table, one of the things that means for us is sorting out the context. What is the context of the prophecy which is we're about to come across in this chapter? And the context turns out to be very interesting. Daniel, we discover as we read these verses, learned from the prophecies of Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem was almost over. Let's read the, the chapter. Um, parts of the chapter will drop, but we will read. I'll read through, you follow with me, and we'll pick up the background information. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, that is King Darius, first year of King Darius, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him, and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. 
the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness. If we jump to verse 11, all Israel has transgressed. Now, the bulk of this chapter is Daniel praying a prayer. And I'm just reading parts of the prayer. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us, because we have sinned against you. You fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. If we go down to verse 16, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill, our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. And so he continues in his prayer. Finally, we're going to get jump to verse 20. Let me just continue to clarify the context. Daniel has prayed this prayer beginning about verse 4 down through including verse 19. Daniel's concern was one thing. He had discovered from the books of Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. At the point that he discovered this and prayed this prayer, 68 years had transpired. And he realized time was almost up according to the prophecies of Jeremiah. And so he set his face to seek the Lord and to pray this prayer, but if you examine the prayer closely, as I have done, and some of the things following in his discussion with the angel that turned up, Daniel's primary concern was twofold. The iniquity and the sin of Israel, that is the people of Israel, their transgressions of the law, their disobedience, the extreme place into which their transgressions had descended. And his other great concern was Jerusalem, its destruction and the shame that was upon all the Jewish people in the world because of that destruction. And so as you look through his prayer, he repeatedly refers to the transgressions of his people and he repeatedly refers to Jerusalem having been made waste and is pleading with God for its restoration. An angel turns up. Now you would think that with an angel coming quickly in answer to this prayer that the angel was about to bring good news. You will find from Daniel's perspective it was mixed news and we're going to find out what the prophecy actually said. Verse 20, we read on. While I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Pause there. Twice the angel has said to Daniel that he was to understand. Understanding then has been given, and in the words that follow, we are meant to find something very understandable to us. This is not meant to be obscure, and as you will see, it it is not necessarily obscure. But he says something else to Daniel. He said to him, you are highly esteemed. You see it there on the screen, second last line? You are highly esteemed. This statement occurs four times in the Bible. And it's the same angel who says once to Mary, you are highly favoured. Do you remember that? It's the same statement. But three times the angel says it to Daniel. Daniel is the only other person in the scriptures to receive that statement. He gets it three times to her one. It's very interesting. Now what does the angel have to say? The next verse, verse 24, is the one that we're going to unpack today, but we will read the rest of the chapter down to 27. Here's what the angel said. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. If you are counting, that's six things. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end of his decree is poured out on him. Now, None of this is too confusing until you get right to the very end where the last verse does appear strange. we work backwards just for a moment to clear up a couple of things that we'll have to revisit later on. The last verse in this chapter is considered to be one of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible to translate, let alone interpret. Every now and again in the scriptures there will be a verse or a clause or a phrase that because it's in a very old language is difficult to translate and then once translated what does it mean and is the translation correct and to give you a sense of this I was reading from NIV 84 but on the screen was the new NIV the current one Uh, and look at the last sentence Well, look at the whole verse. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. 
That's actually talking about Jesus. But some of the crazy dog ladies at the table want to twist this and put the Antichrist in there. But I'll show you how this does not apply to the Antichrist, but probably more on another day. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. You will see today that that is the Christ. The last sentence, though, is at the temple, he will set up an abomination. That makes it sound like it's the same person who's doing this. It causes desolation until the end of his decree is poured out upon him, and the hymn makes it sound like the same person all along that ended the sacrifice. You can see why this is actually a very convoluted kind of translation, and this has been very heavily influenced by some modern ideas that really don't hold water. Let me, let me show you the translation of the exact same verse from the Holman Bible, which is also a modern translation, and here it is. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of men. And notice it doesn't say it's the same person. The abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decree of destruction is poured out on the desolator. So here's a translation that totally removes the last sentence from referring to the same person that the earlier part of the verse did. Now, I'm going to show you a very simple solution to this conundrum directly, not just yet, in a little while. However, I should explain what a week is. A week in um, this passage, or if you come across the phrase, a seven is referring to a period of seven years known as a heptad. Ever heard of a heptad? H-E-P-T-A-D. It's simply an old English word that means a group of seven. And the angel had seven said to David, 70 heptads have been decreed for your people. We'll take a look at that verse for a minute. Um, yep, verse 24. Let's go there for a moment. 77 are decreed for your people. Here's what I need to explain. This is where Daniel might have got quite a shock with the visit of the angel. Do you remember where Daniel was? He was in prayer, pleading with God for the restoration of Israel back to the land, pleading with God for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, for the temple to be rebuilt, and for the sins of Israel to be forgiven. And in the prayer, he was freely making confession of terrible iniquity and sin. So here's Daniel pleading with God for the restoration of the nation. When the angel turns up and the first message from the angel is simply this. In addition to the 70 years which are now about to finish, another 490 years only has been allowed for your people and Jerusalem. Daniel knew from the prophecies of Jeremiah, in fact, let me show you those prophecies. We look at uh, Jeremiah 25, 11, and Jeremiah 29, 1. Here's, here's Jeremiah 25, 11. Daniel had the books, and he would have read this. Jeremiah prophesied this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Four chapters later, in chapter 29, he writes, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And it was at the 68-year mark that Daniel was praying. 
two years to run. We'll find out directly what happened. And so Daniel in his prayers, in his mind, is dealing with a period of 70 years and pleading that after 70 years the people will be restored. But the angel turns up and says, from the time that the decree goes out to restore Jerusalem, in other words, from the time that the king issues a decree, now at the end of the 70 years, the king will issue the decree, did issue the decree, and Jews went back and began to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, and it all happened right on that 70-year mark, but the message of the angel to Daniel was, from the time that the king issues the decree, 77s. See, Daniel had been praying about 70 years. The angel said, from the time that 70 years is over, another 70 times 7 years has been allowed for your people. And then the angel begins to tell Daniel what will happen in the 70 heptads the 77s of years. Now, this is what we are about to find out. In Daniel chapter 9, notice in verse 11, I'll put it on the screen for you, take a look at what he says in his prayer. All Israel has transgressed. That was his free confession. But look at the opening word, of the angel's message in verse 24. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. Daniel had been praying, confessing the transgressions they had already committed and seeking forgiveness and seeking a new beginning. But the opening message of the angel was there's going to be 490 more years in which your people will pile up even more transgression. Now let's take a look at the decree. The angel says here, um, look at verse 25, we put this on the screen for you. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Now, who's this anointed one, the ruler? This is Jesus. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. In other words, seven heptads and 62 heptads will be completed and then Messiah will come in other words, the Messiah would be in Israel during the 70th heptad. Don't believe the lie that says that this last week of Daniel's prophecy is somewhere off in the future and that some antichrist will come and make a, make a covenant with apostate Jews and begin offering sacrifices again in some newly built temple. The, the Bible does not teach that. But there are people in the world who break up this prophecy and they take that last seven. Remember the angel said there would be 77s. There will be um, seven sevens and then there'll be 62 sevens and then there'll be one more seven. But this, this is a contiguous whole. 
And besides which, he made it very clear. He said there'd be seven sevens and then 62 sevens until the anointed one comes. And we'll see more clearly in a moment just how Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies right in the midst, in the middle of the 70th heptad. The angel makes it even a bit clearer. He says that the first uh, bracket, he's, he's divided these 77s or 70 heptads into three brackets. Of the first, that had to do with the original rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. This is verse 25. You're still on the screen. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens. How long seven sevens? 49 years. Seven heptads. 49 years. During times of trouble, the angel said, you can read the passage, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, but during times of trouble. Now, go then to the stories, if you're familiar with your Bible, go to the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what do you read there? You read the stories of the exiles coming back from Babylon, building the temple, laying its foundations, building the city, building the wall, but with a huge amount of trouble. So much opposition from the people around. The work started, the work stopped again. And during that period, the prophets Haggai and others were all prophesying, encouraging them. So prophets arose. Uh, Joshua was the high priest. Anyway, there's, there's histories of this in the Bible. Whole books of prophecy, whole books of history devoted to that period of seven sevens in which following the exile in Babylon, Jerusalem was rebuilt and the temple rebuilt, but the angel said it will be rebuilt but in times of trouble. And it was. That was the first seven heptads. 49 years. Then begins the next period, a period of 62 heptads. Anybody figured out yet what 62 times 7 is? Eh? 434. Is that right? You know what period that is? That coincides more or less with the period that we refer to as the silent years. It was a period in which no prophet appeared in Israel leading up to the appearance of John the Baptist. And then finally the time comes for the final heptad of seven years. Now, just one more bit of background I've got to give you. This is about the decree. Uh, verse 25, still on the screen. Look again at the opening phrase. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What decree is this? We don't have to look for secular history and for proper Bible theology. We mustn't. But as it turns out, the Bible itself is full of references to this decree and its effect. There was such a decree. The king's name was Cyrus. As it turned out, at the time that Daniel was seeking the Lord and receiving this prophecy from the angel, Cyrus was not ruling the kingdom in his sole right. He was the associate ruler. There were two kings. 
This was the empire of the Medes and the Persians. But within two years, the senior king had passed on and Cyrus arose as the sole ruler of the entire world. It turns out that a long time before this happened, his name had been written in scripture repeatedly. This is an astounding prophecy that so many things were said about Cyrus and what he would do, his decree was prophesied and in fact he acted completely in accordance with it. Let me show you the scriptures. Here's, uh, for example, in Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2. Uh, by the way, this exact statement that you're reading here is found in two places in the Bible. It's also found in Second Chronicles. It's how that book ends. Here we are. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. What did he say? Here's what he said. Next one, hello. Three and four. Ezra, there it is. Cyrus wrote, hmm, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem. That didn't seem to quite follow on. Are we missing a line? Computers do this to you sometimes. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. That's better. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Friends, this is a pagan king. This is an idol-worshipping king. But he proclaimed to the whole empire, he's the ruler of the whole world, that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And now we have the next statement. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. And he says further down, in every locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock and free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. But long before this happened, it is prophesied. We take a look at Isaiah 44. This is a really big notion in the scriptures. This is not some small thing. In God's eyes, this was a huge thing. Look at how he introduces it right here in Isaiah 44. And verse 23, he says, Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Now, by the way, this is hundreds of years before it occurred, is this prophesied. Sing for joy, O heavens, the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song in mountains. Let's find out what they're singing about. We go to verse 24. Uh, no, go to verse 25. Who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, here we get to the crux of it, who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, friends, this is written several hundred years before who says of Cyrus, 
He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Friends, this was written before Jerusalem was destroyed. This prophecy that Jerusalem would be rebuilt at the command of an emperor called Cyrus was written before that Jerusalem had even been destroyed. We have astounding prophecies. And this is just the beginning of it. If you read on in the next chapter, just two verses, verse 1, verse 13 of of chapter 45, verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shot. shut. Listen, stop right there. Leave that on the screen for a minute. This is astounding stuff. Centuries before Cyrus and his associate king conquered Babylon, a prophecy was written. Remember, Babylon ruled the world. In the Bible, we read of Nebuchadnezzar and later of Belteshazzar, who were kind of the top and the bottom of a line of kings that ruled the Babylonian kingdom. But the Medes and Persians, remember I told you last Sunday, Babylon was besieged by the Medes and Persians. Last Sunday, Philip talked about that party that Belteshazzar was having and the writing appeared on the wall. And Daniel was called in an old man now to interpret the writing. Well, outside... The army that was besieging was the army of the Medes and the Persians. That was the night that their engineers finally managed to divert the Euphrates River that ran through the middle of Babylon. These were watery gates with huge structures, but by diverting the water, the, the, the stream went dry, and the army had two huge gates by which to enter the city. And right here, look at that, two open doors before him, if you go back to the original Hebrew and some of the older translations, it's actually much clearer with some of the unusual ways things are said, but this was talking about the doors or the gates of Babylon. But that isn't all. To strip kings of their armor, if you go back to the more literal forms of translation here, it actually refers to the loins of kings being loosed. Do you know what that means? Think about wetting your pants. Listen. Not only did a prophecy written centuries before say to Cyrus that before you, the loins, look here, here it is, look, here's, the, here's another translation, he's got it in it. And I will loose the loins of kings. Alex is doing good work back there, finding all this for me. This is the prophecy. And I will loose the loins of kings. Do you know what happened the night that the handwriting appeared on the wall and Daniel came in? Belteshazzar was the king. Do you know what the passage says of him? His loins were loose. All this prophecy fulfilled. Oh yeah, to open before him the two of gates. Didn't I tell you? Now this is just the beginning of wonders. Because we're about to look at what those six things were in that one verse that all this is leading up to. So here we are. We have Cyrus who actually issues the decree and the Jews go back, but the Bible tells us that from the time that Cyrus issues the decree, 
for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, a clock started ticking, and the Jewish nation as a nation had 70 heptads, 490 years until certain things were completely put in place, and here they are. We now concentrate on these six things for a little while. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. The first is this. Uh, there's the scripture on the screen. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish. The first is to finish transgression. What could that mean? Take a look at Matthew 23 and 32. I'm going to show you by reference to other New Testament scriptures that each of these six things were fulfilled. Here's what Jesus had to say, and he appeared in the middle of the 70th heptad, the 70th seven, and the middle of that heptad, Jesus makes this statement, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. This prophecy is fulfilled, that is, to finish transgression, or if you like, to fill up transgression, to bring transgression to its completeness. This prophecy was fulfilled in the betrayal, the rejection, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Bible has repeated over and over that in doing this, the Jews of Jesus' day fulfilled and filled up the sins of their ancestors. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 15 and 16 is another reference. Who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. It is speaking of the Jews of Paul's day just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. The interesting thing is this. The same act of the Jews and their leaders in putting to death the Christ, the same act which was the pinnacle of their sins, their highest sin, also served to the putting away of those sins insofar as the cross took them away. This is the next item on the list. Take a look at verse 25 again in your Bible. 77 to decree for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. Item number two, to put an end to sin or to make an end of sin Hebrews 9.26 is the one verse we'll refer to take a look at it on the screen otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin see the phrase to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself and in fact, there are many other verses like this in the New Testament that make it very clear that it was Christ's sacrifice that made an end of sin. Number three, the third thing in the list in Daniel 9.24 is to atone for wickedness. Atonement, now some translations will say reconciliation for iniquity. Some say atone for wickedness, some say reconciliation for iniquity. These are strongly related terms. 
Here's what the New Testament has to say about it. Romans 5, 8 to 10. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And Colossians 1, 20, take a look at this one. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. Friends, We've, we've just covered three of the six. I'm only making a simple statement of what each of these six are, but here's the, the whole point of this that I'm trying to get you to see. All of these six things took place at a specific point in time that had been prophesied by the Scriptures, that is the middle of the 70th heptad. This will become clear again when we read that Scripture in just a moment. The time was very important to God. It had been measured out and he was very aware of it. Christ was aware of it. The prophets, the apostles were aware of it. When Jesus, when Jesus first appeared to Israel, that is, when Jesus went down to the Jordan River and was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, that was the beginning, that was the end, by the way, of the 69th week. As measured, as measured from the decree of Cyrus, 69 heptads were completed. It was the beginning of the 70th week when Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit and appeared to Israel. It was the beginning of the 70th week when John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This has no sooner happened and we get a statement on the lips of Jesus. Here's that statement from Mark 1 and verses 14 to 15. Take a look at it. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Here's the quote. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. You see this phrase? The time has come. Here in the Old Testament you have a prophecy very clear about the time. That from the time Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild Jerusalem there'd be seven heptads of years, 49 years of Jerusalem being rebuilt in times of trouble. Then there would be 62 heptads and the end of that period a total of 69 sevens would bring us to the Messiah beginning his ministry. The Messiah being anointed and appearing to Israel and that is exactly what happened. And everything in this verse, verse 24, the prophecy of Daniel 24, each of these six things were fulfilled in the middle of the 70th heptad. Why don't we go back to that prophecy for a minute and show you uh, why that is crucial. No, um, we go to verse 27 again, the last verse of the chapter, the one of which the last sentence is so difficult to translate. 
but the beginning part is not difficult to translate. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. This is the final heptad for the Jews. In the middle of the seven, now what do you think the middle of the seven is? It's the three and a half year mark. And it is from John's Gospel because John records much more carefully in much more detail than any of the other Gospel writers the movements of Jesus is coming to and from Jerusalem, the numbers of Passovers in Jerusalem that he visited. And it is very clear, very evident from John's Gospel that the ministry of Jesus lasted approximately three and a half years. It was at the three and a half year mark that he was crucified, he suffered for your sins, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, which is the new temple. All these things happened at the middle of the 70th heptad, precisely in agreement with this prophecy he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. We'll worry about the other sentence later. Hopefully I've said enough to give you a clear picture of the timing of all of this. What were the other three items in this verse 24? Item four was to bring in everlasting righteousness. Um, read the list again please from Daniel 9.24 77 to decree for your people in your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness now we've already discovered Jesus did these three things oh well no the, sorry the Jews filled up their transgressions Jesus put an end to sin he atoned for wickedness and then the fourth is to bring in everlasting righteousness the comment to make about that is this righteousness is the most prominent feature of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's item four. Number five, though, brings us to tears. Item five is to seal up vision and prophecy. What does this mean? Dear friends, this is a reference to what would happen to the Jews as a nation and to Judaism as a religion from that point. That is from the point of the middle of the 70th heptad, the point at which they crucified the Messiah. Their ears would be closed, their eyes would be closed. Through Judaism and through the Old Covenant and through the nation of Israel, there would never again come a prophecy, there would never again come words from the Lord through that avenue and they themselves would be blind and deaf. This is to seal up vision and prophecy. This morning, the Lord woke me at 330 and I got up and I was pouring over the scripture I'm just about to put before you. I found myself totally overcome 
weeping. This is not something to rejoice over, but to grieve over. And indeed, it's very grievous. It's easy for people to sit here more than 2,000 years later from many of these events and simply read it as cold history, like we sometimes read of, you know, King Henry VIII chopping off the heads of his wives, and we read all these things and, and we're moved with a little bit of compassion, but we don't grieve. We don't see it as ours to grieve. But this morning when I read these scriptures, uh, I was in the Holy Spirit and I began to experience it as if it was very current grief, almost as if it had just now happened. And what I was actually seeing and feeling was the loss, the huge loss of all the little boys and girls that had been born in Israel to Jewish families and all those young women and young men, all the richness that they'd been promised, the, the huge wealth and value of it all, but it was all lost. It was all destroyed. Their cities were destroyed. Their culture was destroyed. Their hope was destroyed. And all of this because they had so transgressed, they had so rejected the Holy One, they had so pierced him in ways other than the crucifixion, they had so trampled his laws, they had so loved themselves and so hated his ways. Let me read you just a few of these verses. Isaiah 6 and uh, verses 9 to 10. There it is on the screen. He said, now this is God speaking to Isaiah. He, he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like seal up vision and prophecy. We, we read a little more, verses 11 and 12. It just runs on from this. Isaiah says, then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined. And without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. When Jerusalem was finally destroyed after the, after the 77s, Jerusalem was not rebuilt for 200 years. And it has never again, it has never again been what it was. It was destroyed for good reason, and it will never be again what it was. Go to Isaiah 29, and this is the passage over which I could not but weep with great grief. My, my weeping this morning was not just the usual tears. Um, it can't be explained. There's plenty of times I'll read something in scripture and the eyes will get moist and you feel so moved. But this morning I was overcome with deep, deep grief. Deep weeping. Uh, like a howling, just bawling. Just, and, and my sense is that the Lord still feels the grief. Still feels the grief of what happened. And he allowed me to enter into it and to see things and feel things that, that cannot be explained. But look on the board and see if you can pick up something. Isaiah 29, 6 to 7. 
The Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames. By the way, that is what began. That actually happened at the beginning of the destruction of Jerusalem. Of a devouring fire, then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel. Ariel, by the way, is another name for Jerusalem. Ariel is referred to in the Bible as David's city. When it says the hordes of all the nations, the Roman legions, 20,000 men were made up of people of all nations, came from all over the world, to fight against Ariel, that attacked her in a fortress and besieged her, and, and so on. Jump to verse 8. Um, yeah, look at the bottom line. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Verses 9 to 10. Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunken but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. This is the judgment of God, blind and deaf. He sealed your eyes, the prophets, he's covered your heads, the seers, uh, the next part. For you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. What, what was the prophecy of Daniel? Seal up vision and prophecy. This all had to do with the, the judgment of Jerusalem and the destruction of the nation. Look, look, leave it there. Just, just show me Jeremiah 2, 11 and 12, would you? I want you to get a sense of the weeping. Here's Jeremiah's comment. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Um, uh, that's not the one I had in mind. To, uh, yeah, I've given you the wrong reference. Never mind. Go to what? Go to what Jesus had to say, Matthew 23:37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I long to gather you as your children together, but you would not look. Your house is left to you desolate. And Luke 23:27. Uh, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Finally, uh, in, in closing out the six things, the prophet said, uh, Daniel, the, the, the angel said to Daniel, there it is in front of you again, and to anoint the most holy place. All these six things were to happen in the middle of the 70th heptad. What is this one? The other five are easy to define from Scripture, and there are extensive references all through Scripture using the same terminology that tell us exactly how it was fulfilled. This sixth one, we can only give it a high degree of probability. But that is very much sufficient considering the accuracy we have with the other five. And it means this. The word place doesn't have to be in there. Some translations do not put the word place and to anoint the most holy. But there are scriptures like these. I show you two scriptures. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. And 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Hey, listen, you notice what this verse is suddenly doing? It's saying that the church is the temple. The Jews thought their temple was the most holy place. The angel prophesied and said, the most holy place will be anointed. Here we've got a verse that says, 
that we are that temple, not that temple, and look what he says, uh, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And if you get uh, another translation, it throws the word anointing in there. What's it a reference to? It is clearly pointing to the day of Pentecost. A new temple being built, a new house being built, a new holy place as the Holy Spirit poured out on it. I thank God. I wanted to show you today, now I, I have to show you a little more on another occasion relative to how the rest of that chapter works out. But I wanted to show you today how definite is anything that the Lord says about time. The angel said to Daniel, there's a specific time and I think it is a heresy to break a week off the end of that and project it out into the future and make up some theory that is simply not biblical. Instead, we must see that these prophecies were fulfilled. They relate to the Christ. This is the most astounding stuff amongst all prophecy. We must respect that any scripture that refers to time is accurate. Jesus himself said when he began to preach, the time has come. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, 4 said of that, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son. All this time is a complete package deal. Now we must finish here, but here's my point for you. You and I need to be so humble before God that we are enabled by his grace to still have our eyes and our ears. Part of the judgment on Israel was that vision and prophecy would be sealed up and there are many, many places that said they were deaf and blind. But you and I are not free of the danger of being spiritually blind and deaf. It is very possible. And if you take God for granted, you take the church for granted, you take grace for granted, if you take salvation for granted, you can drift along in your merry way thinking you're doing fine and well, thank you very much, but all the while you might be a lot more blind and deaf than you think. It behoves us to stop regularly and humble our hearts before God and express our dependence upon him and ask that he would open our eyes and open our ears and that he would instruct us and be our teacher. For we do not want to come under judgment as those who have drifted in idleness and rebellion and being a law unto ourselves. Pray with me then. I thank you for this uh, prophetic insight from Pam this morning. That the word of God is is increasing in its uh, coming at us, so to speak. I, I thank you, Lord, all around us indeed. The Spirit of God is at work and your word is alive and we thank you so much. This is not a day in which the word of the Lord is rare. 
but a day in which the Holy Spirit is upon God's people to lift them in service and in understanding. And so we receive it, and uh, Lord, as you as you've said, we come trembling before the Word of God, that is in holy fear and awe, seeking to understand. Make your word available to us today. Reveal Jesus to us today. And put before us clearly light on the path of life. Take a hold of every soul, every heart here today, I pray, in Jesus' name. All right. Going to have to quit. Battery and headset is running out, but here. Well, how you doing, Chris? See, maybe we can unmute you to see what's going on. Got a couple minutes left before that, uh, things die here. So, anyways, good stuff. How you doing, Chris? Can you hear me? Hold, hold on. Are you able to hear me now? Yeah, I hear you. Okay, brother. What I do is I always mute my phone until I get the H six hundred. Uh, I always mute my phone so there's no, so you don't have to mute me. Unless I'm going to speak, I will unmute my phone. But for the most part, I leave it muted. Oh, by the way, uh, was that live with that gentleman? Uh, today, no. Just now? No, uh, that's it. His name is, name, his name is uh, Don Alley. Uh-huh. I think he's from Australia. Well, so he does some work. Brother, I didn't hear a lot from him, but I'm sure you're selective in your process of picking who, who you're going to interview. But I can tell you that the guy uh, prior to him, uh-huh. I have to hear that from its entirety, but uh, he was well. He understood Josephus's uh, 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 picture uh, as he chronicled uh, the demise and destruction of of what was then uh, an intact Jerusalem, I guess the Romans had had enough. But no, I really enjoyed that, brother. I really, I love that historical. I was like, you know, I know that you love history too, and uh, we really must learn from it, or we'll. You know, the old adage goes, we'll repeat it. But no, 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 that was really good. I thought we were going to do something with Larry, and, and, I, and I know I can always go back to that. Are you still here with me, brother? I'm here. I'm listening to you. Oh, good. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, no, that was thought, really did you good. Guys, did you guys do a show? Larry said you are going to do a yeah, show we on went his. Ahead, we went ahead and did a show because Larry had uh, shared that with me. Uh, and I wanted to uh, to uh, go ahead and take part in uh, what Isaiah 32 and 33 are, you know, and uh, that was well. Yeah, uh, when you realize what it's all about. No, I, <laughs> it's, what did you figure, what, what did you figure out? What, what, what is it about, Isaiah 32? Well, you know, it's just more conviction upon uh, the uh, the Jews in that day, in that time, and it just reinforces the the idea, or the actually, it's a historical fact that God uses foreign entities. You know, the world. You know, I'm, I'm coming to, 
I'm coming to learn as far as this, the day of the Lord thing, especially when you read through 32, and then you realize that <clears throat> it's not talking about a future thing per se, uh, you know, like, you know, something in the, well, a lot of people try to use that for something like, uh, the, you know, the end, end, end times type of thing. But, it, you know, mm-hmm. it talks about the judgment of God or the day of the Lord and, a couple of days, a couple of verses later, it's talking about the animals while walking around. <laughs> it's clear he's talking about what, wait, what, what, what's walking around. What did you say? Talks about animals. something walking around. Animals, Ooh. right? Or oh, animals walking around doing what? 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 What's going on? Or maybe it's thirty-four. I'm thinking it's thirty-four. I'm thinking about that. Sure. Right. Right. I think we get thirty-two or thirty-three. We're going to get to thirty-four. Uh, let's, uh, Anyway, um, uh, oh, I'm trying try to make it out to be something uh, uh, more than it is. It was, I guess the point is the day of the Lord. Everyone, when they say the day of the Lord, has something to do with the very end of times. And the day of the Lord is whenever He actually makes passes judgment. You know what I mean? Whether it's yeah. like the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of the whatever nation it may be. So. Well. Well, brother, the, the day of the Lord is—it's uh, not a big deal because when when I die and the Lord takes my last breath, you know, or I take my last breath. To me, that is the day of the Lord. I mean, that's judgment, end of the world stuff, and uh, but that happens. For you, to yeah. What's yeah. that? Yeah, it happened to the city, didn't it? The people in that city. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, but but more specifically in that city. And he he was a very eloquent speaker. What's his name? Because I'd like to look him up in my in other time at another time. Which and, one? Uh, the last one or the, the first, first one? The first one. No, the the first one that that that, that went over the uh, the demise of the uh, of Jerusalem and the Roman uh, 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 general Titus. You know, it took an edict of Rome to bring down. Jerusalem and all their zealots and laying siege to that city. Well, you, you know, I don't know what you knew before that, but he was a very, you, you really picked a real ringer there uh, as far as uh, the study on uh, the destruction of Israel and Josephus chronicling it. I don't know how Josephus could not see that Jesus is Messiah, but that's another story. But what was that? That is he a preacher or just a just an historian? Or he's got a YouTube channel, and uh, uh, I think he's I'm trying to think. Or you come up so, with this guy? This guy's Fellowship good. Fellowship of, of the Martyrs. Fellowship of the Martyrs is the name of the. Um, his book, YouTube channel, YouTube channel, oh, and okay, the website. So and website. He's got a website, Fellowship of the Martyrs. YouTube. Uh, what's his name? You recall? No, I don't. No, no, thank you. I didn't. You don't remember his name offhand, but it, but if I went to YouTube, I could go to Fellowship of the Martyrs. Fellowship of the martyrs, and uh, no, where did you come up with him? Because that was a wonderful. Might be Doug Perry. That might be his name, Doug Perry. Is that is that could that be his name, Doug Perry? P 
E double R Y. Yeah. Yeah, Perry. Where'd you come up with him? He was uh it was a wonderful historic uh uh chronicle. I, I really enjoyed that. And uh so I'm gonna hear it again uh via your archive because I don't know how much I don't know how long did he speak because I think I caught the tail end of maybe a, an hour or so yeah, but I just hour, I was hour a, and a half hour and a half so it's yeah, just a summary I was a, it's basically just a summary of uh, uh, Josephus book uh, the war of the Jews right uh huh the well, Jewish yeah. wars the Jewish wars Would, whatever it's called you know? wouldn't that be a great book to possess that uh, you know that that whole Chronicle of the demise of uh, of uh, Israel. I'm sorry. Uh, well, yeah, it was Israel, uh, uh, but it was uh, Judea, the last two southern tribes to fall, and they fell yeah. to the Romans. Even though prior they they fell, and you know the dispersia, you know, and they came about, and uh, that was two years. That was 200 years after uh, Rome, uh, not Rome, uh, the Assyrians took out the the the, the northern ten tribes. And but the point here, to for me to understand, is that God will use, uh, you know, as God used Israel to take out, uh, you know, when when the cup of the Amalekites was was full, then God used Israel, uh, you know, uh, which you know used them and took them out of bondage and uh, synonymous with the word Egypt. Egypt and, and bondage are not synonymous biblically speaking but the, the beauty here is that uh god uh well most would not take it as beauty but i uh, i love the history as you do and uh but this guy uh doug is, is it doug perry uh i will go there later you know when, when we don't have something happening you know but uh you know he was well spoken and he really he, he did understand I found no fault in his uh, historical reenactment of what what and all the 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 you know all the intricacies of of the of the debauchery that befell Israel and boy you know bottom line here we don't mess with God we don't challenge God uh, otherwise it's to our great demise and as God used. Uh, Use Israel to conquer those those nations as they took the land from the Gentiles, you know, after Moses died through Joshua, and you know, and then they fell into continual debauchery, and and and, and those, and then thus we have the Book of uh, Judges that that, uh, that historically points out this uh, this whole thing, you know, historically speaking, but. Uh, but what happened there is what what your 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 guest. Where did you come up with Doug Perry? Because that was well. I don't know. Is he a believer? I, I trust. I, I would hope he is a believer in Christ. Where would you come up with this fellow? Because he, he was. Uh, I enjoyed just go, it. Just just go to YouTube. Go and Google it. Just Google. How did you, how did you find the did Jewish you know? wars? Just go. You yes. know the, the wars of the Jews, or you know Jewish wars of the, the war. Uh, you know. 70 AD, uh, Jews versus the, uh, you know, whatever, Rome. Hey, to get job, it's just a summary of what well, you no, said in his book. Yeah, you, know. you, you, yeah you did a good job. And uh, did you, and that was live, right? With Doug? 
Was that live? No, was I, uh, no I, I would like to interview him about it, but uh, no. Well, maybe sometimes maybe you, can sometimes, you, sometimes you don't really need to have it live. If, you, if it was live, I would have been talking along with him. So, so. Exactly. Just, well, I'm really I mean? glad you, you relayed his message uh, to us as I'm going to be expanding upon it because I'm getting a very clear picture. Yes. That, like, Matthew 24 is overwhelmingly yeah. starting to look like it was all about 70 AD. It has nothing to do with us it, at all. Yeah, actually from from the actually It actually starts from... The end of the 70th week, the midst of the 70th week, was when Christ was crucified. Some people say that the end would be the stoning of Stephen. As you heard today, it would be the day of Pentecost. Well, I didn't catch be. that part, but I'll, I'll go back uh, over it. I, I think I okay. came in. But the thing about, is, from that, that, half from, hour that left. Yeah. from that moment on, basically from Christ being crucified, I think that 40-year period, which now tells you something, too, if Christ was, you know, if when he was crucified, there's a high probability that he was not born, you know, 1 AD, but more likely 2 or 3 BC, which then, yeah, you know, three, was crucifixion. Yeah, 7 BC is where I have his birth, yes. Which means then his crucifixion was at 30 AD. Exactly. Most likely. And then you have the uh, Jacob's Trouble, which is four years. There's a lot of people trying to make it out to this time period. But it was yeah. really that time period. And what was going on in the Roman Empire was way beyond anybody was being taught in their churches. I mean, it, there was earthquakes and rumors of wars and, and wars, and it was a hellish sure. time. Where oh, not just a million and a half, a million point one died in Jerusalem, but leading up to there, millions, thousands throughout the Roman Empire and the Middle East and Asia Minor and North Africa were dying. Yeah, all the way to this day, brother. It's a continual. Well, no, but, this, but that time period was never like any time period before. Exactly. And you know what? As People, bad as they, World War II was, this. as bad as World War II was, World War One. You got to put everything in its context, the number, the known world. You know, they were talking about the Roman Empire at the time. They were not yes, even fo- focused right. about what was going on in the South Africa or, or uh, yeah, even South Africa. But you know, or Australia, Australia, China, um, India, you know, the Americas. Yeah. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in their world, and in their no. world, it was the worst time ever. It is in the known world. Yeah, in the known world. Yes. So there was earthquakes constantly. Every city just about was demolished or destroyed in the Middle East and Asia Minor. <laughs> it was bad. Well, it was yeah, really it was bad. It was, yeah. it was really and, a bad time. Know, so. you know, let, let, let me let me let me please uh, share this. I really believe that uh, God uh, call me a. a a pre-partial preterist, you know. Uh, well, I'm sorry. If you to want to, if you want to, but I really believe that a lot. Oh, let me finish here. Uh, what I've gleaned from this, and in my study, and Gallagher actually goes through some of this stuff, and, and a lot of this was really fulfilled, you know. Uh, in what I look at it as God's retribution for murdering our dear Savior. 
and, and then 37 years elapsed, 37 years elapsed before Christ. I believe this was Christ's, you know, judgment on on the Israel in Jerusalem that rejected our dear Lord and Savior. I really believe that. And he well, used it's their Titus. It's Christ's yeah, he used story, Titus. It's the, Jews, it's the Jewish story, so... The more and more I'm thinking about it, yeah, you know, I mean, start and be willing to re uh, reconsider Revelation, the book. You know, yeah. The, see, the, you the and religion. I are you and I are you and I are verging on uh, pre pre partial preterism, and or that's preterism. anathema to most. But well, I mean, uh, even preterism, you know, because I tell you what, from what I'm listening to, those who really no, I'm right there with it, you, I'm right there with you, brother. I mean, I've I'm, really rethought this. I really rethought this, and it's anathema to most so-called Christians because they don't understand uh, at least the first half of uh, Matthew uh, 24 and those accompanying verses uh, in uh, in the book of Luke in Mark, where where they say where Jesus says uh, you will not see one stone upon another, and not to mention that the gold that they swallowed and cut their bellies open because they knew they were possessing their gold, and they, and they would get it later, you know, uh, after they... Uh, but anyway, that's getting kind of disgusting, but that's how they thought they could... You know, they were just gutting them up and seeing what anybody walked out. Very, very morbid, brother, but... Cut up his stomach and see how much gold he has in his... Yeah, you know, and I guess, I mean, if that would pass through their system, hopefully they weren't full one-ouncers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on. How many of those things can you eat and live? You know, I mean, you know, uh, uh, see, see, gold, it's funny, uh, you know, on the periodic table, you've got gold as, as A-U. I always think of gold as, because there's a confusion between gold and silver. Gold is a, uh, silver is A-G, gold is A-U. But when I, but what helps me distinguish betwixt the two is that AU, you know, that's the higher, no, more noble of the two metals. But, uh, well, that's another economic thing we can get into later because I'm very well versed at, uh, or at least I think I am. <laughs> All pride aside. You know, the, but but I, I do is, know a know, thing or three if the, about if the, if the preterists are economics. Preterists, yeah. If, if the quote unquote preterists are right, about the fact that basically from the beginning uh, to, to the, well, almost to the end, the middle of the Bible, well, not even that, the middle of Genesis all the way to the end of uh, the New Testament really is about the Jews and then the beginning phases of Christendom, the first yeah. century of it, if you will, the first yeah. half century, really. Uh, yeah. That makes one reassess what we're seeing today. If it is true, then why are is Rome trying to mimic it and trying to be, you know, play the role? Why are they playing the role of uh, Mystery Babylon in our day? Because that's what they are. I mean, there's no dispute. Yeah, they're, that. yeah, they're playing that role very, very well. And the, right. yeah, he is the Antichrist. He is, the, you know, he oh, actually yeah, is yeah, the yeah. son of perdition. All the way he from the beginning that, right? of the Reformation to even now, uh, we continue in our Reformation 
thoughts in our heart that uh, that Rome is that is is just one of the Antichrist. I don't know if I can settle on one man being Antichrist. Well, that's yet to be seen. But we know there's been many Antichrists through the ages. Right, but listen, what really, listen, listen, what the really, guy, he calls himself the vicar. He can, he, 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 you know, he's a, you know, he acts if he's imitation. He's a liar, a rat. He sits, he's a rat. He even sits in a white throne with sure. a two, two uh, uh, cherubims and one on each side. Yeah, with like a white God beanie, head. like a Jew beanie, yarmulke on his head. You know. Well, yeah, that's, and not only that, but you'll find pictures of him with a blue. Uh, uh, the Star of David, as they like to call it, on his head, too. Uh-huh. So, How many points does that star have, brother? Six. Uh, and what's the significance there of that? Because I think they well, renounce that. It all adds up to David six, per se. Six. It all adds up to six. Six, six, six. Yeah. Well, so, you, you know, six on the its face is, is, is the number of man. Six is the number of man. Okay, that's a given. That's been proven through number uh, assimilation through the ages. So it's like 10 is the completion of whatever's in view, you know. But uh, God uses rubber stamps and, and the last perfect science we have. I believe there were, there, were, there were even more perfect sciences up until the fall, you know. And I think that, I think that the, the, the Sabbath, I, I'm just pontificating here, but, but you, may, you may glean something from this. I think I did. Uh, uh, I know I did. Uh, that uh, that the sixth day that the Lord wanted to keep holy when He gave the law to Moses to give to the people, and the Jews have held it ever since, unless they're Talmudic uh, offshoots that are completely disgusting. You know. You mean seventh, seventh you know day? About, yeah, the seventh six. day, which is which is which is Saturday. That's, you know. But 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 what in my in yeah, my in our study, in our calendar remember in our calendar in their calendar their yeah, calendar two hundred sixty days yeah. yeah and it was based as based on the lunar calendar and logically it was they didn't have time right. watches they didn't have you know atomic you know, watches and clocks Correct. they they were not even the Gregorian calendar didn't even show up until the time of the Council of Trent. And one of the you know, the Pope at the time wanted it. If you go back to when they were who they were, they're desert dwellers, and naturally they would use the moon. It's the most consistent, most reliable weekly calendar that they would have. Right? Yeah, there's no argument there. Uh, you know, I, I, they, I, they didn't I, have clocks. I, I, I concur. I concur. Yeah. You know. So this whole uh, Saturday Sunday thing means nothing at all. Zero. Well, yeah, that, that's just man's contrivance on what. Yeah, now we know from the Bible that all days are holy to the Lord. You know, so I don't need to go s- sit in brick and mortar, as you. You know, and, and the the irony is we can't find a brick and mortar that's worthy of us sitting there. Not that we're any great, wonderful, you know, sinless. Well, I think God puts in your heart to, to focus on Him on a day. Yeah. and it gets to a point. It's a momently basis, I mean, what can you do? You can't resist him. He's doing it. So, Oh, no, I mean, that's you, irresistible God, grace. God. That's yeah. one of the tenets of TULIP, that acronym, uh, irresistible grace, that people just just fly right by it. They, they omit it. They don't like it. Uh, you know, the one they really hate is limited atonement, because that really takes it out. 
takes the steering wheel away from them and focuses it on God, where, where you and I know that, that God is in charge of whoever he's saved from the very beginning or, or before yeah. the beginning, you know, in, in a time sense, if you want to calculate time. But the Gregorian and Julian calendars... His elect, his elect, oh, look at you, like all the other people know, even those who are in false religions, I'm starting to realize that his elect are probably in, in these false religions. One of the get, dead, dead giveaways is they talk about Christ, they believe what he, he did, and they talk about him all the time, like you and I. This is not oh, yeah, that's right. World. It's, it's, a, it's a strong <laughs> parallel to <The> world. truth. <laughs> and, and, and you know, brother... Satan is is such a wonderful counterfeiter. And when I say wonderful, I'm using it in a biblical sense. You know, that word wonderful just means abounding, really, in a great uh in a great multitude of of hearers, listeners that you know, mul- you know, wonderful is is not wonderful in our in our current day vernacular. We look at wonderful like you see, you see your son, for example, uh, uh, go from grade uh, uh, kindergarten to grade one, and Lord willing, he'll find an endeavor, you know, and that would that would be wonderful in a father's eyes. That would be wonderful, you know. Or you look at a wonderful waterfall, and and, and you think about the wonder of God in that waterfall, how beautiful that is, you know. But but wonderful can be used. And biblically, in a very negative sense, is just as well. And you know, it's like the it's like the beast destroyed wonderfully. You'll find that in uh, what uh, uh, I have no Revelation. idea. Hey, listen, I have but no idea. Can, uh, hey, can you hear me? Yeah, especially I, I, listen, in uh, I haven't heard the book of Daniel. They knocked me off Skype. Uh, Skype knocked me off. Oh no, it's, it's been four hours. Did so you uh, you have to repeat oh. whatever you said the past two two minutes okay. if you oh. if you wish. Well, did, did you, were you able to reconnect so we have connectivity? Uh, yeah, are you okay? yeah, we we oh. we wouldn't be talking. <laughs> we well, anyway, talk. any, anyway, that word "wonderful" has two definitions, and it can be wonderfully ugly and awful at the same time. Our vernacular only it prevents goes before. Uh, uh, what, the what are you talking about? I'm talking, talking about, about the word wonderful and how it's used oh, and how it can be used or misused. But it, do, it, has two, it, has, it has two denotations, okay? The word wonderful can be used like, you know, the beast destroyed wonderfully, you know, as opposed to in a good sense, you know. I don't know where where you lost me at what point how far back but we were we were talking about uh about that uh that person that came on and and really did a wonderful uh I don't know if he was just reading it verbatim or what but I really gleaned I got I yeah, got you know, a, it's nice to have a good summary of that book because I am planning on thinking I think about playing it this and the audio of the book, The Wars of the Jews, from from Josephus, well, that's uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's like 25 hours worth of 
playing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Audio. <laughs> That's a lot. It's probably available on a hard drive, you know, because uh, these hard drives will carry, I don't know, uh, maybe up to 10 terabytes. And, boy, they can cram on a, on a hard drive, you know, on a disc that you can procure from them. Uh, you can get Mein Kampf and uh, all of Calvin's Institute. You know what I find, you know what I find, I find interesting, right, Josephus, is uh, uh, how many of the Jewish people hate it. And they say, no, it's not true, because there's a, there's a brief messaging of Jesus, the son of, J, of, of James, who was yes. called the Christ. And just a brief messaging. I mean, just a brief, just a sentence. He, he, yeah, he barely touches on Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus, he himself was a, was a Jew to the fullest extent of that term, and a Jew hated the 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 uh, the imposter Jesus. Well, that's, they still do to this day. That's, <laughs> how they, that's what they called our Lord. They called our Lord the great a great imposter, and you, you know. Uh, through the influence of their Babylonian captivity, uh, they, they deem our Lord uh, boiling an excrement for eternity, you know, which is hideous. But, uh, no, they really don't have any uh, assent, positively speaking, in regard to our dear Lord and Savior. Because, uh, you, you know, again, my friend, they, they are looking for a Messiah, even to this day, that will rid them of their, of their adversary, or they can leap to the bounds of not now really if you look at look at the state the current state of Zionism you know over there uh, you know in Jerusalem or wherever what what really is a burr under their saddle is is the fact that uh, that the Muslims are proliferating and uh, that dome of the rock is 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 keeping them from uh, from reinstating reinstating their uh, their animal sacrifices all this red heifer nonsense see see you and I our eyes are open and we we appreciate God's work here but we can see the the irony and the hypocrisy of the current state of Israel you know brother they can't even ever since you know topically speaking they can't even trace their lineage back uh, you know prior to uh you know when Titus destroyed, he, actually he didn't do it. His men did it. He wanted to salvage what was uh, what Israel had to offer as a jewel in the desert. What a wonderful place it was, you know. Until the Roman, you know, uh, uh, captains and their men, you know, uh, went crazy and destroyed it. And 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 when Jesus said in Matthew twenty four. You know, not one stone will be left upon another. What, think of all that gold that melted in between those fallen stones, and here they are trying to pick that soft metal out betwixt the uh, the rocks the, or the or the stones that were were built that were used in the formation of the temple itself. You know, so it's all money motivated. You know, the Jew. You know, you know. The thing is, uh, well, you understand, you know, that what what went down in the greed of man, coupled with the historical application, is just consistent with 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 man himself, as wicked as we are, and uh, given the chance, he will he will uh, 
you know, he will he will he will uh, uh, go to his lowest common denominator, which is debasement of everything. And you, you know, what took me was the the the, uh, the debauched uh, 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 cannibalism. You know, the woman's hiding her child, but she'd eaten she'd already eaten half of that of her own son or daughter, whatever, uh, for food because they when they sieged off, uh, you know, Rome. You know, the Romans sieged off uh, Jerusalem. I mean, what are they to do? I guess starve to death, you know. Uh, uh, no, it was ugly. And you know what? I don't think any time has happened that duplicates this. I don't buy into this six million Jew thing, you know. Six million dead Jews as a result of oy vey, the Holocaust. And when I say oy vey, I say it in... Uh, in jest because I don't buy it and that's a that's a common phrase the Jews use Oive. they use it in different responses to whatever's at hand and uh, I'll just say it and outright you know, and I I know history enough to know that Oive this uh, this six million number is contrived okay, we don't contri- it's contrived Back in the first decade of that century, so they were already having articles. They have, they, I've read the articles on my show. Yeah, I'm talking about from Hitler, uh, like, Hitler's like Hitler's 1905 and other already uh, presenting the six million number. It's a made-up number long before it was necessary um, to uh, motivate. Well, and to get sympathy for the state of Zion. Yes, you know. Still, there were there were there were still were there were millions of Jews that were slaughtered. Oh, oh yeah, but the number was yeah. the, the number was made up, and of course, no sure. one ever talks about the number of Orthodox or the number of Protestants or even the number of Catholics for that matter. Right, it's that's out, right. It, and you know, brother, they're able to they're able to one. because they they control the media in our day, so they're able to proliferate this lie. And I'll just be quiet and, and hear your take on that. Well, you know, Rome controls the media and allows them to be the front men and the scapegoat. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, and you know, they yeah, there's men, they're quote unquote Zionists or Jewish Zionists that are profiteering from it and they're allowing it. But you know, you look at who actually owns all these major news outlets. Uh, you know, men like Murdoch and we can Kiki. How can you possibly say he Murdoch is a Jew? He's not. He's a Catholic. The largest secret society in the Roman Catholic Church we know is is the uh, is the uh, Knights of Columbus in this country, and uh, they right. have a role. Um, you know, it's you know, it's Judo Christianity. Yeah, <laughs> that whole myth form of idolatry is a form of um, yeah, that whole myth of so. You know, supposedly they, and I hate this label that that America is labeled as a Judeo-Christian nation. That well, I hate that. That makes well, me it sick. Well, it is once you understand what that means, because what that really means is that we're a Catholic nation. We're well, universal. I don't hate it because I understand the the, the myth. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, Judeo- you and I know it's not true. Well, we, you and well, I know yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a contradiction beyond, um, you know words you know how can you possibly you can't you either 
uh, you can't be a member of <laughs> either you're a Jew or you're a, you're a Christian. You can't be both. Right. <laughs> and you know what's funny is is that the Catholic Church, to me, is just the second carnation of of uh, of, of Judaism. You know, uh, to me, a Catholic is no more than a than than a Jew. You know. Because, you know, aside from the fact that the Catholics are the mother, you know, they talk about the Catholic Church as the mother church, and we're going we're gonna to compel all the Protestants that have swayed away from mother church to, to be re-Catholicized. And this is, this is lunacy. You know, no, we, we hold well, most, to our Most conviction. of them already are, they just don't know it. You're right. And it's so sad that... They're just they're tentacles of the same mystery religion, the same mystery Babylon, right? It's 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 the they, blending yeah, of all hate, the false they hate our teachings. They yeah, they hate, they they hate they our don't. Savior. They, 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 they gave a cent to his murder. They murdered our Savior. Of course it was the predetermined will of the Father. That this this is the way it would go down. I mean, I don't have to like it. I'm not a player, you know, in this whole thing. But it's wicked and evil, and yet they continue to look for their so-called Messiah. They never read, you know, the book. They've had other books to shortchange, uh, you know, the Torah, which is the five books of Moses. It was given to him. He asked you. How did Moses get this information about, uh, for example, uh, creation? Where did he come up with this? Is this a pipe dream? And you kind of, you got to kind of play along with them a little bit to get their goat. I don't want to get their goat. I, I just want them to come to truth. But but I'll ask them, where did Moses get this this dream or whatever you want to call it? Uh, not you, but them. Uh, well, how do you label this uh this understanding of, uh, and was it given to God supernaturally, where he could uh, depict and relay, relay the history and the story of Genesis to us? Remember, he wouldn't be born for another, what, how many thousands of years later, you know? Uh, but but that my question always remains in my argument with the Jew that, uh, hey, pal, you missed the boat somewhere because uh, Jesus is not uh, Jesus. Well, Jesus actually wasn't even a Jew. He was a Judaite and he was a Galilean. Again, the only Jew in the group was was the betrayer. <laughs> Judas Iscariot was a was a staunch Jew, as it were. But uh, the other ones were just fishermen, Galileans, and and they didn't subscribe to the. Uh, now they may have been. Uh, Members, do you know this, Mike, at all? I don't know. I have a question for you. Do you know if the other eleven apostles did you know? Do, do you know if I, I believe they were of various, various tribal lineage? You know, some might have been from Benjamin, some might have well, been from well, Asher. One was a Canaanite, and another, another one was another one a Sarah, uh, I can't remember. I don't know the whole details about that. I haven't looked really yeah, I don't either. That's why I asked. I just wondered if you, if you maybe had a beat on that, you know, as far as uh, their national. I know that, I know that um, if you listen to, once again, um, 
John Weaver's study on that, which would be a good one to, to play on my show. He goes into detail about that a little bit. But, you know, I don't know. How do you prove or disprove any of that? I don't know. Uh, I mean, how would we even be able to even prove um, without Josephus' history? And then what's funny is a lot of folks, especially those uh, who are anti-Christ, will use Josephus, and then they'll say in the next breath, well... Most likely, he wasn't a real person to begin with. You know what I mean? But yet, they use him as a reference to prove that Jesus isn't the truth. Because a lot of people will say this is the story that we that we learn today about how Rome went through. Because Rome, if you pay attention to their own journey, the Roman Empire, it was the same journey that Christ did towards Jerusalem itself. Starting with the you know northern you know cities and getting to Galilee and then you know what I mean eventually getting to there so there's there's a guy who was a, a total antichrist who was a, a um, Joseph Joe uh, Atwell Atwell At, Atwell is that his name Atwell anyways he uh, he wrote a book uh, Caesar's Christ and he his argument is that uh, it was all uh, made up from the Romans made it up, and uh, you know, um, I don't agree with them, but I listened to them. It, you know, the, the icing on the coffin for me was with uh, Joseph Atwell. You know, he's talking about Flavius Josephus, and um, that Flavius Josephus, to who we are talking about, the Wars of the Jews. And he actually, that name was given to him um, by the uh, Paiso uh, Flavian dynasty and um, whoever that other person is. Let me look into that again and see what it is. Um, well, what, what, do you, what do you think about... But, um, see, You know, it's always good. I think it's very good. You know, if you really do have Christ in you, to listen to the accounting argument because either it's going to strengthen you or destroy one of the two. But if it destroys you, I guess you never really want to hear it. Sure. But uh, with that Joseph Atwell, you know, he uses Josephus for his book uh, Caesar's Christ. I can't believe that's uh-huh. what it's called. The name of the book. Of course, he's a guy that was trained by the Jesuits once again as a young man in Japan. But so he learned about sophistry, casuistry, and how to make up a good story and. Uh, and then he goes around the next breath and say, well, you know, he used Josephus' account. And he goes around and says, well, I don't really believe Josephus was a real person. And I go, well, then what's the point? Are you even reading your book if you're using Josephus' account and then you say he's not even a real person? You're of uh, absolutely no value to me at all. But the Caesar's Messiahs, that's what it's called. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you don't want to believe in who Jesus is, and you're a man of the world, um, it will be a great. If that was something you would use, something like that. Of course, if you pay attention to his citations and how many scriptures he uses, along with, uh, you realize that you're just listening to more of the same Luciferian BS that's out there. Along you're talking with about jo- you're talking about Josephus, the the Jewish historian in that day, right? I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying he's bogus. I'm saying the people that are trying to make out a story other than what the Bible says, 
try to discredit yeah. Christ. You yeah. know, a lot of them they use Josephus, yeah, the historian, and then yeah. next breath they say that he's not, a, he wasn't a real person. Oh yeah, oh, no, he was very, very much simple, a great, great historian. Well, no, I know. And I, that's not, you and I believe that, but I'm just saying. Yeah. If you write a book called Caesar's Messiah using Josephus's account of yeah. Christ and what happened to the Jews leading up to, you know, 70 A.D. and etc., and then say in the next breath that you think that Josephus is not a real person, you totally discredit yourself, and your book is of no value. And this goes along with, like, the uh, Zeitgeist movement, to saying that it's all about sun worship and that Christ was real, is not real. If you look at their citations, there's nothing there. It's just, uh, you know, this past 150 years has been nothing but one big pile of lies coming out of men. You know, uh, you know, 150 years ago, most, you know, an awful lot of Christians, you know, were, did recognize, like what we heard earlier today about the 70th week being fulfilled through Christ, and there was no giant gap theory. There was no such thing. No one even thought of such a thing. And now, whether we want to blame it on the youth, we certainly can blame it on Rome and the Jesuits and their whole. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was false Christians, people like, um, well, Darby or whoever it may be, you know, um, well, what's the other one? It had his book here. Um, anyways, these, these pretending to be Baptists or whatever, they weren't believing in Christ, you know, and teaching everyone this dispensation of futurism, you know, grandest yeah. of lies. And, you know, yeah, it all leads back, even, you know, preterism is a good argument that the, that a Jesuit uh, did that as well, too. But, you know, the problem is the more you look into it, the, the more logical, you know, that, you know, that book, what we read, especially what Christ was saying, what he's talking about, he's talking about it his people, you know, and uh, what was going to be the final fulfillment for them and the end of them. So, and uh, we know that it Brother, was... Brother, would you, would, you, would you define in your terms futurism or a future? Or, or no, dispens, dispens, dispensation of futurism is this whole idea that... Uh, that oh, so another dispensation. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, or yeah. futurism. Futurism also would be this whole thing about uh, a seven-year a period of tribulation and oh, head yeah. midway through it maybe is when the Antichrist shows up and temples and makes a deal that. with the Jews yeah okay that, no, that, that, that's, yeah. All, that's all made up and that's all comes straight sure out it sure it is sure it is yeah see see again I think you might agree you with me you can't justify reason, it at all through scripture you can't even no no we can't we can't but they give credence to this this seven-year reign of Antichrist, but in the middle of the three years, three and a half years, he he breaks his he breaks his contract with the Jews, and you know, and as a result, and all this, and we we know this is nonsense because again, they have not understood how God uses the only perfect language, which is which is arithmetic at its basic. It is basics. But you know, but and, you, I, and, I, I arithmetic is just it all out. It, it's just a rubber stamp. That's all I'm saying. Uh, you know, let's well, just let well, me get this I out. I just, just tell you, and anybody may here listen to this, that I would forewarn you. There's a high probability that they're going to try to play this all out. 
Oh, sure they are. Yeah. According to these phony merchandisers of the gospel, let's say how Lindsay had a, uh, you know, let's say he had a table outside of the temple and was exchanging two ounces of silver for one Jewish Jewish uh, uh, shekel, you know, one Jewish, and they were changing two two Roman, that's two ounces of a Roman denard, you know, and, and, and boy, believe me, these Jews knew that all they needed to do was melt it down and cast, cast it into a Jewish type coin. So here they're making double their money, you know. That's aside from all the bulls and the blood and the goats and the offerings and all that stuff. But what a business they made, and Jesus knew. Jesus is the master of arithmetic again. Arithmetic is the only, all the way to calculus, It's the and beyond. It's the only perfect science the Lord left us after the fall of man. I believe there were, I could be wrong, but I believe there were other perfect sciences prior to the fall but man in his but god did leave one and that's mathematics equated the factors equated properly will always reach the same correct conclusion and and what has satan done through the schools even now currently we have uh what's called uh, a common core which teaches something so absurd that two two plus two equals five i mean I mean, is this not in uh, the Creator's face? I'll tell you, brother, it's in my face. I know it's in your face because you have a child that's that's just about ready for school. And, and you know, brother, I really hope you you homeschool him. I don't know what well, your wife thinks, but I don't know brother, right now she's keep she's keeping them away from me after what happened yesterday. So yeah, I, I remember you were you you shared both that. I have right now, and I don't have them so. This is just blatant sin, and she's she just just just. I mean, it's like you know, it's it's like you're. We're off the air, right? We're we're off the air, totally, no, we're right? Not off, we're not off the air. No. Are we on? I know, I know, we're on the air, but 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 talk shoes concluded, correct? No. Oh, okay. Still well, there recording. Were a couple, oh, I, oh, I I didn't know that. All I was gonna say, and and I and believe me, I'm not giving any assent in a positive value to Common Core at all. I can't. It's debauchery. It's destroyed. It's it's like uh, it's like you know what reading reading writing and arithmetic the the three R's okay. It's like they've destroyed and we know they've destroyed the vernacular of our common of our common communication, you know through the English language which is our vernacular of today. We know they've destroyed the vernacular of today. And next is arithmetic, which are obvious conclusions to uh, to equations, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, properly properly deduced, and coming up with a wrong answer and reveling in it. This is what makes me sick, you know. Uh, uh, you know, two plus two always will and can't but help but equal four. But Common Core says otherwise. And, and you know what? Oh, and getting back to the English language, uh, what were we taught? We were taught phonics. Now, I speak to some young people, and they don't know anything about phonics. 
It's been written out of their memory bank, if they ever had a memory towards it. But the, but the, but the real horror here is that they'll never sound out the words or understand a a e a o u, which is which is, you know, uh, which is, you know, the basics of uh, of phonics, uh, talking about the vowels and the sounds that they make, and, and how much easier it is to understand a word or its root, and and and, and how it's phonetically spoken through sounding out the phonics. But they strip that away as well through, oh, no, just memorize this. Now who, now who, what person can memorize this whole, in this whole stinking approach to, to memorizing the English language? Man wasn't set up with that, but, but man has given us keys in the past to understand through, through the vehicle of phonics but they've completely uh, adulterated that and destroyed it at its root. So, 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 re- reading is out the door because they've killed phonics and and writing. Well, you're listening to the writing of Marx and not you, but the world, and, and they love the socialism through a Bernie Sanders potential, you know, uh, candidate. But, 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 and, and arithmetic. Well, they, they they've attempted to to de, de unstabilize that through their through their common core. So so that's like two thirds. It's like, it's it's like consistent with with destroying the the and going along with the planks of communism, which are you know again we we were never a country meant to be. Our founders taught us that there was if you want tranquility in life, it was. Uh, it was uh, peace, prosperity, and, and the like. But but I think he capsulized it. I don't know if it was Jefferson or whomever. But uh, but life, liberty, and the pursuit of not not uh, not life, liberty, and the pursuit of mm-hmm. of property. Not life, liberty, and the pursuit of of uh, of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a misnomer, and, and, all, and this is another another approach to to undermine uh, the tenets of our so-called constitutional republic. We're not a democracy, but they call us a democracy. Again, another another attempt at undermining. And, and if you ask any any people anybody off the street, what's what form of government do we possess currently? And they would nine out of ten would say especially younger people would say, well, we have a democracy, and they're proud to say that. Well, I'm ashamed of democracy. We're 49 rule over, or for 51 rules over the other 49. That's not how we were set up. But it, the whole thing has just become such a such a bastion of confusion that uh, now you and I were, were grew up, and we know the difference by the grace of God, but I'm worried about Chase. I'm worried about I'm worried about even children in their 20s or 25. You know, look what they've been taught, and look what they're going to reflect back to us is nothing but nonsense, and it's all predicated upon their understanding of of of, of, of a false 
uh, reading, writing, arithmetic. I mean, if you can't, if they can't get that right, how? If the standards, uh, biblically speaking, if the standards are cut low, or or debased, or their foundations are, are crumbled, then how can the how can the righteous stand? They can't. They can't stand in this day and age of un- undermining, uh, you know, uh, uh, reading phonics out the door, uh, uh, arithmetic, well, common core, out the door. And what's left? Reading, writing, writing, okay, writing. Well, look what they've done. They've superimposed their whole idea of what, what, what is what constitutes speech and, and how we can endeavor into saying something. Well, you can't say that. That's not PC. And as it were, I know you see where I'm coming from, but, but, but the roots have been attacked to the degree where everyone is, and the ultimate end is that, Everyone be mindless so we can take over more readily. You know, brother, they just want us out of the way because we know a thing or three. But but let them get to our children. That That's what, isn't that what Stalin and Mao, didn't they not agree that, uh, boy, just give us your children and we can really control the whole earth and in no time flat. Now, this is, uh, this is something to reckon with. And if we don't uh, regain and kick out the common cores and kick out all these other bastions of of, of lies, we're going to be stuck with, you know, reap, reaping what we've sown or allowing it to be, to be uh, reaped. And we know the conclusion of what will be sown as a result. But it, it, it's scary to think that uh, they have their way with us, and they're and they're and they're and they're teaching our children all these all this nonsense, brother, and it, it prevails. And, and you know the real insult is that we're paying taxes to our to our own demise. You know your thoughts, please. I'll just listen. Yeah, it's all true. There's only one answer. It's Christ. The one answer that everybody wants uh, doesn't want to hear, as usual. So we're not much different than the Jews now, are we? Yeah, not much different. Much people that even say they are Christians, but they don't even do they. Are they really? Do they really put their faith in Christ? Do they even know who Christ is? So, brother, we're so hated. We're so hated, like like our dear Lord was. Remember, he was hated without a cause, and 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 he told us that we will be hated as well. And no, I can only he, he was hated for telling the truth, speaking the truth. We right, live exactly. in a world. We live in a world yeah. where people do not really want to know the truth. Even the truth yeah, matters. The truth, yeah, no the truth movement, the truth movement, and all that—they yeah. don't really want to know the truth. It's a lie. What they, it's like what they really want is everyone to think that they have the truth. Control. Yeah. 
you know, they're just being used. I don't know, just being used. Dumb, stupid uh, dupes. They'll say that about us, though. Well, they're the cooperators, is, yeah. Right. I know that we're dumb, stupid dupes. They even believe in Christ. But, you know, why do you and I believe in Christ? You see, they don't understand that because, well, they're not one of his elect. So. Well, what, is their, what is their option? I mean, what is their alternative? Their alternative to you and me, brother, is not palatable. It's not, it, it, it doesn't even deal with reason, their, their, their so-called alternative to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, it's the same thing no generation, it's a generation, right, itself, them. And then, of course, when they realize that it's not them and they can't do much about their circumstances, they put their faith in bed until that's crushed. And then uh, some of them are God's elect, and they'll wake up and go, okay, I get it now, God. It's you. And everything else is just full of, you know, men's vanities and then lies. But most people never see that. They will die to their grave believing lies. Yeah. All the glory yeah, and praise goes to God. A, we can, you and I can't take any credit at all for anything. Any of you know, brother, brother, you're so right. And what's going to happen is they're going to wake up in hell, but they're, they're going to wake up on their deathbed, perhaps, whenever God, you know, wakes them up. I'm not saying God saved them, you know. I, I don't know. That's all the disposition of God and how he works his, his wonderful salvation through in in. in in our time, you know, because he's not subject to time. But but what's scary is that they believe all this nonsense because that's, you know, it's sad because this is all they've ever been taught. So what is their alternative? You know, you know, again, that, that, that proverb, I believe it's a proverb. It's either proverb, Ecclesiastes, or could be found in the Psalms. But it's, uh, again, it says, uh, when the wicked rule, the righteous hide themselves. And brother, when I say righteous, I'm not saying I'm righteous at all. I'm far from righteous. I'm antithetical to righteous in my flesh, but I am righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's yeah. the only righteousness we can derive in this life is is through Jesus' righteousness. It's not unto us, O oh Lord, not unto us, but it's unto you, O oh Lord, unto you. Savior, 
only one, and I, I believe they tried to poison him. I, they, they they boiled him in oil or whatever, and God put a shield of protection. I'm not saying uh, the Apostle John didn't suffer pain, but he never he never lost. Maybe he had bouts of losing his faith, but we know that in the long run he died very much the believer he always was because he was able to eat, drink, sleep, you know, uh, uh, in and about our Lord's presence. And, and what gives us solace is that uh, that the Lord said, uh, you know, yeah, sure, they believe because they saw. Uh, but uh, what blows my mind is, yeah, yeah, yo, oh, let me complete this. That, 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 that more blessed are those that, that believe yet have never seen him, you know? Yeah, we believe because he's our only ammunition. He He's in our stead, brother. He really loves us. And you know what? If we pick the hard road, I don't think so. Because the hard road will be shown or manifest. Manifest is just another word for shown or to show. It's just a fifty cent word, you know. And uh, I'm not sure other other versions of the Bible use the word manifest, but but the word to to show or to manifest or synonymous, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, should let you go here, by now. I uh, if, if you want to, and then. Couple hours, maybe I'll do something about Matthew 24 from that gentleman. But well, anyways, cool. I, uh, you know, he was talking about it's almost that. five if hours wanted, here. So you want to run that? Quit. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate that, and I'm going to go there and I'm going to listen to it because I just love listening to that stuff. Uh, maybe uh, I can pick it up, pick it up better I, I uh, over Skype. I don't know what all his stance are, but he did a good job when it came to. Well, I thought he did too. Have you ever spoken to the man? No. Or, was that just a? Uh, was just a? Because I know I noticed you didn't inter- interject with any questions. I just I just wondered if he was uh, if he was uh, a separate entity from Talkshoe. Apparently, he 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 is. Yes. I don't I don't know. I I just enjoyed it. I just uh, I love history. You know, and I.